0: San Francisco Health Commission meeting of Tuesday, July 18th, 2023. A quick note on the agenda, we will be moving item nine, the Laguna Honda Joint Conference Committee report to uh, before item eight, which is the consent calendar to allow for some discussion. So please make a note of that and we will proceed with calling to order. Secretary
1: Morowitz, please call the roll. All right, sure. Commissioner Christian. Present. Commissioner Chung. Present. Commissioner Gerardo. Present. Commissioner Bernal. Present. Commissioner Chow.
2: Present.
1: Commissioner Guillermo.
2: Present.
1: And Commissioner Green.
2: Present.
1: Just a reminder to the commissioners and everyone in the room to please turn off or silence your phones.
0: Thank you, Secretary Morowitz. Now I'll yield to Commissioner Chung to offer the Ramaytush Ohlone land acknowledgement.
3: Thank you, um, Commissioner, Commissioner Bernal. The San Francisco Health Commission acknowledges that we are on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramatouche Ohlone, who are the original inhabitants of San Francisco Peninsula. As the indigenous stewards of this land, and in accordance with their traditions, the Ramatouche Ohlone have never ceded, lost, nor forgotten their responsibilities as the caretaker of this place, as well as for all peoples who reside in this traditional territory as guests we recognize that we benefit from living and working on their traditional homeland we wish to pay our respects by acknowledging the ancestors elders and relatives of the Ramatush Ohlone community and by affirming their sovereign rights as first peoples
0: Thank you, Commissioner Chung. Our next item is approval of the minutes of the Health Commission meeting on July 20th, 2023. Commissioners, after reviewing the minutes, if there are no amendments, do we have a motion to approve? So
4: moved.
1: Second. Any discussion? Any public comment? Uh, Folks on the line, I have a script to read. Let's see. For each agenda item, members of the public will have an opportunity to make comment for up to three minutes. The public comment process is designed to invite input and feedback from individuals in the community however the process does not allow questions to be answered in the meeting or for members of the public to engage a back and forth conversation with the commissioners the commissioners do consider comments from members of the public when discussing an item and making requests to dph please note that each individual is allowed one opportunity to speak per agenda item individuals may not return more than once to read statements from other individuals unable to attend the meeting written public comment may be sent to the health commission at the following email address health.commission.dph at sfdph.org if you wish to spell your name for the minutes you may do so during your verbal comments without taking your allotted time please note that city policies along with federal state and local law prohibit discriminatory or harassing conduct against city employees and others during public meetings and will not be tolerated we will first take public comment from individuals attending the meeting in person we will then take remote public comment from individuals who have received an accommodation for a disability. I've given each of these individuals a code to speak when they begin their comments to prevent others from speaking during this time. Finally, we will hear from uh, remote public comment from all other individuals. There will be a time limit of 20 minutes on the total amount of remote public comment that can be heard on each item from individuals who have not received an accommodation for a disability. All right, so um a, please uh, unmute the one person who has his hand up. Caller, please let us know that you're there.
5: Hey, I am. It's Patrick Manette Shaw, code AA. Please begin. Thank you, Mr. Moritz. The June 28 minutes noted that both Commissioners Chow and Green requested an updated Laguna Honda organization chart. Although Mr. Morowitz was kind enough to provide me with a copy of that updated chart privately, he noted that Commissioner Chow again wanted it updated because the fonts are, again, too small. That's due, in part, to it being prepared again on tabloid size 11-inch by 17-inch paper. The minutes report that Chow is concerned about the recertification timeline This would be the looming September 19th date on when CMS and CDPH expect discharges from Laguna Honda will resume, which is now just 60 days from today, July 18th. The minutes report, Mr. Pickham said, a quote, Laguna Honda's sustainability plan, end quote, would be presented to this commission quote in the near future end quote i think mr pickens told the lhhjcc the same thing about a formal sustainability plan why hasn't that plan been presented in open session and is a public record yet what is the delay in presenting it thank
1: you that is the only public comment for this
0: item All right, any comments from commissioners before we go to a vote? Seeing none, all those in favor of approving the minutes, say aye. 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 Opposed? The minutes are approved. Thank you. Next item is general public comment. Back to Secretary Morowitz.
1: Sure, I have a shorter script to read. At this time, members of the public may address the commission on items of interest to the public that are within subject matter jurisdiction of the commission, but are not on this meeting agenda. Each member of the public may address the commission for up to three minutes. The Brown Act forbids a commission from taking action or discussing any item not appearing on the posted agenda, including those raised during public comment. Um, so again, this would mean that folks who are making comment now would not be speaking on a topic that's listed on the agenda. Um, I see, is there anyone in the room who would like to make comment? Uh, I see no one, I see one hand. Time may please unmute Mr. Manetshaw. Shaw.
5: Thank you, Mr. Marwitz. As a general public comment about the commission's jurisdiction not on today's agenda, it has been painfully clear for a long time that this commission all too often acts like a rubber stamp for the director of public health and whatever he or the mayor may want to implement as health department policies. Rarely do U.S. As commissioners, ask relevant questions or proactively address major issues. One such issue is the absolute dearth of various types of treatment beds in a whole host of various types of facilities. The, the, the severe shortage of beds in San Francisco is the worst example and the lack of commissioner involvement suggests a let-them-eat-cake, nonchalant mindset, essentially whitewashing the shortage. Mr. Pickens, for his part, keeps citing the incorrect statistic that the 2016 post-acute study had said San Francisco would be 700 Uh, skilled nursing facility beds short. He's wrong. That shortage is more on the order of 1,700 beds or worse. Yet this commission has taken no action to proactively explore building out additional skilled nursing bed capacity in our city. And instead, San Franciscans are being dumped into out-of-county skilled nursing facilities. This commission should conduct another study since the 2016 post-acute study is seven years old and sadly out of date before another um, committee exploring whether to convert Laguna Honda's uh, patient towers into um, behavioral health beds is undertaken or released in August or September or October. So the Commission is fully informed of just how severe the sniff bed shortage is and whether uh, uh, purloining Laguna Honda beds for some other patient population will only worsen the skilled nursing bed shortage in the city.
1: Thank you. All right, that was the only public comment, or the only hand raised.
0: All right, our next item for discussion is the Laguna Honda Hospital and Rehabilitation Center Closure Plan and CMS recertification update. Update. Uh, welcome, Mr.
1: Roland Pickens. Can you please bring up the presentation?
6: Good afternoon, commissioners. It's my pleasure to provide you with this update on the Laguna Honda recertification uh, process. Next slide. So I'm very pleased to share with you um, some of our most recent hires, and notably, we have hired uh, a new uh, nursing home administrator and chief executive officer, uh, Sandra Simon. She is actually uh, with us remotely on on the on the. Um, uh, computer and um, was actually able to uh, meet with the joint conference committee of, of uh, the health Commission at our last meeting and uh, would uh, similar to I did what I did at that meeting would would pause and give an opportunity uh, if the chair so chooses for uh, miss Simon just to say a few words if that is your choice
0: yes please welcome miss Simon
7: hello can you hear me Can you see me yes, we can. Um, yes. Hello. Uh, hello.
8: Um, I'm thrilled to be here. I'm starting my fourth week um, and learning a lot and doing all my orientations and meeting with all of the team and just really looking forward to um, helping Laguna Honda on the path to recertification and um, working in conjunction with Roland and the team and the folks here um, for a bright new path for Laguna Honda. And I don't know if you have any questions of me. I'm a longtime nursing home administrator. I've been um, been a nursing home administrator for over 20 years and uh, was at the what was formerly known as the Jewish home of San Francisco for 11 years as the nursing home administrator and chief administrative officer. So I do have experience in a distinct part SNP here in San Francisco and then in multi-levels of care and multiple um, types of skilled nursing facilities
7: i'm just happy to be
0: here great well thank you Ms. simon and welcome to the commission meeting uh, we're very happy to have you on board we know that filling this position um, has been a priority of the center for medicaid and medicare services and we're very pleased to have someone of your caliber in this position along with some of the other uh, new members of the team that i know mr pickens will be telling us
6: about during his presentation thank you Thank you, Sandra. So continuing with the presentation, in addition to Ms. Simon, we have also hired the two assistant nursing home administrators. Uh, We have uh, joining the team, Mr. Diltar Sidhu, also a longtime um, licensed nursing home administrator in California who comes to us from a, a facility in the East Bay. Uh, And we've also hired our assistant nursing home administrator who will focus on all aspects of care experience, both for our residents and our staff. And that is Jennifer Carton Wade. And we're excited to have Jennifer in this newly created position. Uh, And then finally, uh, we have hired Mr. Greg Chase as the first ever executive director of facilities, engineering, fire life, safety and capital projects at Laguna Honda. This is a new position for Laguna Honda and puts it on par with San Francisco General, which has had a similar position for several years. And now Laguna will have that same uh, level of expertise in facilities and engineering. Next slide. So as we uh, bring on these new leaders, we are still continuing the search uh, for the uh, three additional Um, positions that will make up the senior team at Laguna. Those include the director of nursing services. Uh, We've had one round of interviews uh, and uh, are continuing with that search process. Uh, The executive search firm we're using uh, is uh, outsourcing new candidates for consideration, and we hope to uh, have another round of uh, interviews within the next coming weeks. Uh, The same applies for the uh, medical direct position uh, there were a series of interviews uh, last week and uh, we are still waiting on the search firm to present additional candidates for interview and review and again the desire is to move forward with a hire as soon as we find the uh, right candidates uh, to meet the unique needs of laguna at, at this point in its um, history and then finally we are also recruiting for continue the recruitment for the director of emergency management Uh, and disaster preparedness. Uh, You recall that in the root cause analysis uh, for decertification, there were several deficiencies in in this area. And so thus uh, this uh, position was created to address those uh, findings. So uh, the leadership positions that have been filled along with these remaining ones um, that we're recruiting for will definitely align Laguna Honda with top performing skilled nursing facilities uh and uh fulfill the uh recommendations that were made to us as you recall several months ago by both of the consultant uh firms that have been consulting on the laguna honda recertification next slide so our path uh remains the same as it's as it has been since uh april of last year when the decertification occurred We continue to work hard to meet all regulatory requirements and to make the rapid improvements to prepare for recertification. Uh, This includes uh, both long term operational institutional and more importantly cultural changes uh, within the uh, environment at Laguna in order to achieve uh, both our recertification and also long term success for the hospital. Uh, We are confident that between our own staff and the expert consultants we have brought in and continue to bring in as circumstances require, that we uh, will have the team in place to ensure a successful recertification survey uh, within the coming months. Next slide. Uh, So you'll recall the history of uh, where we are in terms of uh, the federal centers for Medicaid and Med- Medicare and Medicaid Services and California Department of Public Health. Uh, back in November of last year, there was a settlement agreement reached in order to continue the pause and transfers of residents out of Laguna and also continued funding. Uh, that pause was uh, reinstituted and approved in May of this year. Uh, that um, continues that pause in uh, transfers at least through September 19th and funding through March of 2024. Uh, and that also assumes that we are not recertified before that September 19 date. And we'll address uh, that uh, towards the end of this presentation in terms of our timeline for recertification. Next slide a major component of that settlement agreement uh, are the are those 90-day cms monitoring surveys you'll recall we had the first survey in november december of last year the second survey in march of this year and most recently had the third 90-day monitoring survey june 5th through the 9th Um, since then we received what's called the 2567 which is the statement of deficiencies outlining uh, regulatory findings um, that was received about two weeks ago. We uh, then um, uh, did the required 10 day turnaround to work with the CMS quality improvement expert uh, to, for them to do a root cause analysis and then for us to work with them to develop uh, an action plan with milestones to address those deficiencies. That action plan with milestones was submitted to CMS last week on July 12th, and we are awaiting their review and approval and hope that they will do so in an expeditious manner so that we can stay on track for our timeline of submitting for recertification uh, by the end, uh, before the end of this summer. Next slide. Uh, actually, can we go back one more, go back to the previous slide? Uh, I wanted to also mention in terms of the milestones with uh, this new uh, action plan. Uh, there are several milestones. I think the good news is the milestones that are there for the most part are not a surprise. They basically encompass um, those areas uh, that Laguna continues to work on that have been previously identified, uh, but for, for where um, we haven't had enough time to do the full fixes of those areas. Uh, We are confident uh, that uh, all the milestones in this last plan have uh, completion dates uh, by September 1st. So that uh, that aligns then with our plan uh, for recertification by the end of the summer, and that we will be ready for any uh, recertification surveys um, sometime after September. Uh, Next slide again, this is a pictorial of the timeline of the whole recertification process going back to April of last year. Uh, It talks about all the readiness activities that we engaged in, which this makes it look simple, but uh, two consulting uh, uh, engagements from two different firms, uh, the 90-day monitoring surveys, all the action plans and milestones that uh, have been developed and submitted and that we're all reached uh, 100%. And again, our timeline for uh, submission for recertification um, uh, by the end of this summer, as indicated here. Uh, Next slide. So that concludes my uh, brief overview of the update of where we are, and I'm happy to uh, take any questions or comments at the appropriate time.
0: Thank you, Mr. Pickens. Uh, Secretary Morwitz, public comment, please.
1: Sure. Uh, folks on the line, we are on item four. Um, and let's take the folks who have received accommodation first. So if you've received an accommodation for me, I've only given out two. Please raise your hand. If not, please hold on to do that. Um, just making sure there's nobody in the room. Okay. Um, Jaime, please um, mute, uh, mute the first caller. Mr. Manette-Shaw, you've got three minutes.
5: All right. Uh, This agenda item, unfortunately, claims Mr. Pickens is Laguna Honda's acting CEO. It shouldn't have been on this agenda. It's factually wrong and insulting to Sandra Simon, Laguna Honda's new nursing home administrator and CEO. Michaela Varista distributed the QIE's monitoring report number six the other day, to the LHH stakeholders' email list. The report noted on page 15 that the CDPH Form 2567, uh, a 126 page survey report for inspections conducted between March 13th and 17th, and on April 4th and on April 19th it uncovered another 10 f deficiencies, including two G and Engulf citations, which represent isolated actual harm, quote-unquote, isolated actual harm, substandard care to Laguna Honda residents. Well, those two actual harm citations affect being able to submit Laguna Honda's application to become recertified. Report number six also reported that the root cause analysis reports number five and number six, along with the additional action plan milestones, were submitted, as Mr. Pickens indicated, on July 12th. When will Ms. Baristo release both? The RCA report number five, and RCA report number six publicly. The Gantt chart on page seven should start indicating in the bottom third of the page what the projected date certain date on when the application for certification will be submitted. It's obviously not going to be submitted before September 15th, if, as Mr. Pickens said, there are new milestones with uh, due dates of September 1st. You, you may have to start discharging patients on September 19th because you're not going to get recertified between September 1st and September 19th. Finally, as I've asked over and over, the Moss Adams contract, uh, was supposed to have been presented to the Health Commission. Uh, the Commissioners asked for it last April, and we still have no clear idea of why. What is that, Mr.
1: Menechel. Hi Jaime, please mute. Thank you. And please unmute the next caller, caller four. Hi, caller, please hi. let us not. Please begin, yeah, Dr. Palmer. Hi.
8: Uh, this is Dr. Palmer. Can you hear me?
1: Yes. Please begin.
8: Okay. Yeah. I, time is really going sh- growing short. And by July 31st, a closure plan, which is going to include a state-led crisis response team, state-hired temporary management installed at the facility, and partnerships with other facilities to temporarily expand capacity is due uh, so that the more than 500 remaining laguna honda residents can be evicted and dispersed statewide and so um, i would like to know if current efforts at recertification will make that closure plan unnecessary or if it will go forward and the other thing is you're talking about a survey that's going to occur in early September and you keep vaguely saying, I, I really appreciate all of Mr. Pickens efforts, but there's this continuing vague statement about by the end of the summer, um, we need to know how that will affect December 9th, the September 19th evictions and quote, and uh, dispersal of residents uh, that we know will result in deaths because Laguna Honda at its worst is better then a lot of these private corporate run nursing homes at their best, and people will die if they are forced to leave Laguna Honda. Thank you.
1: All right, please mute. Uh, those are the only two callers, commissioners.
0: All right, thank you callers. Uh, commissioners, any comments or questions on the Laguna Honda update? Commissioner Chow. Uh,
9: yes, uh, thank you, Mr. Pickens. Um, I was interested in uh, first the timeline of the recertification Uh, now that you've sort of said that uh, by September one then the milestones that we're discussing are underway so. uh, uh, The the second thing would be uh, or maybe it's actually the first but I I was kind of caught by the September one. Do you uh, see uh, the difference between our very first full survey and then this third survey that was full so then it came with a uh, different set of milestones so that presumably some of the first ones weren't necessarily repeated and uh, the volume of those have come down. So I think it'd be kind of nice for the commission to understand what that uh, difference is now and how you then feel that you are able to meet a recertification deadline. If you think that it is sort of close to September, because <laughs> you've been talking about prior to the end of the summer, uh, and uh, the opportunities that also then there's a closure plan from the state that is coming. How we believe that that closure plan that you believe that the closure plan is or is not one that's, uh, you know, uh, going to uh, be one that you're looking at not having to use. So does that make some sense Uh, to discuss uh, the uh, uh, comparison between the two full surveys? your recertification time frame again, and then this last issue of the, uh, where is the closure plan of the state? What does it do f- with or without us?
6: Okay. Yes. Thank you, Dr. Chow. And, uh, please keep me honest and make sure I cover all those points in my response. In terms of the. Uh, the two uh, full surveys, the first monitoring survey back in November, December, and then this most recent monitoring survey, June 5th through the 9th. Those were full CMS uh, certification surveys. You are correct in that the first survey yielded, I believe there were 126 uh, uh, findings of noncompliance to federal uh, regulations. Uh, The second survey yielded 33 findings of non-compliance. So a significant decrease from the first survey to the second. In terms of findings that um, uh, were re- repeated from either the first or the second survey and the third survey, uh, an example could be uh, individualized care plans. Uh, having been on the uh, Laguna Honda JCC for many years, you will know that that has been a finding at Laguna even prior to decertification. Uh, issues with not having individualized care plans. So there were findings on the first survey to that extent. At that time, back in November, December, uh, we had probably about 600 residents at Laguna Honda. During that time, uh, as uh, we had worked with staff to move forward on individualization of those plans, at that time, only about 25 of those plans had been vetted as fully compliant with individualization to meet federal requirements. Contrast that to the most recent report that came out last week. Um, Now we are at 440 of the care plans of residents at Laguna that have been certified by external consultants as meeting the federal requirements for individualization. So uh, while there were findings in that first survey, uh, the fact that we've we're almost at 100% for individualization, which we will be by the end of this month, uh, that third survey did continue to have some findings of a lack of individualization of care plans. But again, that's something that has been worked on. It is almost fixed, uh, but there was a finding in the third survey. So that's uh, an example. Uh, in terms of the timeline for, for certification, uh, as I s- shared in the presentation, we submitted the new root cause analysis and action plan to CMS on July 12th. We need for them to review that plan, give us feedback. You recall for our last action plan we submitted for the second survey, it took them two months of back and forth before uh, they actually approved our action plan. Uh, In order for us to meet our end of September, end of August, deadline our uh, goal for submission we need them to turn that around so in terms of not having the t- definitive date date i cannot give one because we're still depending upon cms to approve that action plan so that we can hopefully then fix the things that they approve for us to fix in the manner that we have proposed um in terms of the state um closure plan you'll recall uh, that is a new development that occurred uh, in in May of this year. That is a closure plan that was uh, directed by CMS to the state, not to us. It is a plan the state has developed uh, without any of our input or consultation. They have some, my understanding is they submitted their state closure plan to CMS uh, and CMS uh, is reviewing and kind of going to a back and forth process with them. Those are the reports that we hear but again that is not a plan that we have privy to that is a plan required of the state by CMS uh, without our involvement.
9: So um, could you remind me again then the third survey had about 40 33, five, 33 findings oh, okay I'm I'm sorry so went from about 126 in a full survey to about 33, some of which were repeat because we're continuing to have, just like you pointed out, the uh, uh, individual care plans, which now are um, a good 80% uh, complete, which is uh, uh, a, a great uh, uh, improvement. Um, the, so the state plan then Uh, you're saying we're not even involved in that and the state, uh, and the federal government could just then say that the state would mandate and uh, use their plan, which might include or doesn't include any, uh, work that we would have to do. I mean, how, how can they then be writing a plan that might involve staffing from here doing things without the staff from here being involved in writing this?
6: That's a great question and I don't have an answer to that. I I would hope that the state would uh, be referencing the closure plan that we submitted and that was approved uh, so that there would be some um, congruence or alignment so that the plans would not be separate. But my understanding is CMS requested that from the state in order to make sure that the state played an active role if a closure plan was ever needed. Again, it's all of our desire that a closure plan is just something that will never have to be implemented. But my take is CMS wanted the state to actually um, um, be more involved in this whole process and thus that request was made directly to them.
9: Oh, so it's sort of a state review of what they think would work for a closure plan um, and you're saying the federal government really wanted to have the state get involved and be privy to this but there is not really an action that necessarily has to occur because of the closure plan that is correct. being written that's correct and and what conversations have you been having with uh the uh, CMS people being that September 19th is not all that far away and even if, and I guess you could apply for recertification uh, prior to, or do they really require recertification to be able to say extend this deadline if in fact the survey is showing such improvement that's going on?
6: All right, so that's a great question. So um, the settlement agreement says that CMS has the discretion to uh, extend the pause recertification application is not a requirement for them to extend the pause. So they have the authority, even if we were not to submit for recertification prior to September 19th, uh, per per the terms of the settlement agreement, as long as Laguna is able to show progress towards recertification, that is sufficient to provide uh, an opportunity for CMS to extend uh, any uh, transfers and or reimbursement.
9: Uh, Thank you. I think that concludes my questions. Uh, LHS
0: LHHJCC Chair uh, Commissioner Guillermo.
4: Thank you, and thank you, Mr. Pickens, for your update. Um, I know that um, you, um, we had the opportunity uh, at the JCC to meet uh, the new nursing home administrator, uh, Ms. Simon, uh, and to congratulate Jennifer Carton Wade on her appointment. Uh, the other uh, key positions are the director of nursing services, medical director, and the emergency management. Um, how close are we to, to those positions being filled and do you foresee, uh, any circumstances sort of out of our control that are going to make that much more difficult in terms of being able to, uh, have a whole complete management team, uh, on board.
6: Um, for, um, for the director of emergency management, I, I don't foresee any, um, Things that are out of our control. I think it's just a matter of, of 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 getting a a quality applicant pool. And similar to similarly to the medical director, you know, I think we're it, it's clear that we're at a point where we cannot accept mediocrity in terms of particularly new leadership that comes into Laguna. And so while there may be people who are appropriately Uh, have qualifications or meet qualifications, they also have to have the unique skills required to enact cultural change at Laguna. So while they may have the technical skills, uh, we're looking for more so that we hopefully don't find ourselves in this position again. And so uh, that's why we are continuing with the search for quality candidates uh, for those positions. uh again the search firm uh has gone back out there two weeks back out now in terms of sourcing new candidates so we are expecting them to present new candidates to us in in august so that we can move on to additional uh interviews
4: uh do you see in your estimation that there are uh issues that um are going uh, that make it difficult for recruitment of those top uh quality candidates that um that um may be under your control as opposed to you know the the issues of the quality of the candidates? Um, the, uh,
6: I would I would say um, um, that you know we're, we're partnering with um, all parts of the uh, organization to uh, r- remove any barriers that that may exist um, particularly when it comes to um, um, the medical director position. Uh, within skilled nursing facilities. um, While it's been a position that's been at Laguna for a while, um, different nursing homes, as we're learning, structure that that position differently. Some of them have one individual who is like the lead, others will divide up tasks for the medical director uh, amongst several individuals. Uh, and, and, that is uh, a, a typical structure within skilled nursing facilities that, um, division of tasks then means that sometimes individuals are not working full time. And so for the city and county, as you know, we have rules related to uh, having secondary employment. And so that potentially may be an issue as we try to identify top tier candidates, um, who, um uh, particularly may uh, have um, volunteer obligations uh, or, or other work obligations. But you know we are working with all the appropriate parts of the city and county to try and see uh, if we can mitigate any concerns within the boundaries of city and county rules uh, to make sure we're not excluding top-notch talent from our applicant pool.
2: Thank you
10: vice president
2: yes and thank you for the update as well i wanted to get back to this question that was raised about the um, closure plan that the state is supposed to uh, develop do we have any concerns at all that they won't corroborate what we already know i mean the public has mentioned so many times how the quality of other skilled nursing facilities falls so far below laguna and even farther below when we've completed all our milestones but i recall that we were desperately searching for beds and I remember at one point there were a thousand in the state and two were taking Medicaid do you feel that there's an expectation I mean I know it's an extrapolation or or conjecture but do they suspect the state is going to magically come up with beds make new beds or do we have confidence they'll corroborate what we know which is that are simply no beds that are better than Laguna
6: beds Right, right uh well it's in my opinion it should be the latter um I cannot imagine a scenario where I'm not aware that there's been a building boom of skilled nursing beds in California over the last year, so uh, I cannot fathom that they would be able to identify uh, vacancies, again, if a closure plan were needed where L- Laguna residents could readily go. I've, I would um, extrapolate in a worst-case scenario that um, if it were to ever come to pass that they would then look back to our original closure plan which said if you ever get into the position of needing to transfer residents out it would take 18 months or more uh, again those are hypotheticals ones that we hope we don't reach uh, and again that uh, every closure plan that's been put together surrounding laguna hunter re- uh, recertification is hopefully one that will never see the light of day it is, but it's just a uh, An exercise uh, in um, CMS uh, directions and requirements.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Vice President Green. And yeah. following up on Vice President Green's question, I, if I recall correctly, uh, when decertification first happened and there was the requirement that Laguna Honda begin transferring residents, there was a period of time during which we had Laguna Honda staff making literally thousands of calls every week in order to number one, identify available beds within California or and as close to San Francisco and the Bay Area as possible. Um, and to then start initiating transfers if, uh, if beds were found and very few were found through that process, correct?
6: That is correct.
0: And of course, we saw the result where, you know, as a result of a number of things that in many cases long after a resident had left the care of Laguna Honda, we tragically saw we saw some of them, some of them pass away. Correct. Correct. Um, just in, in closing the topic, and there are other comments, I just wanted to acknowledge uh, Mr. Pickens, your, your longtime leadership in this role, and very happy that you have now your, your permanent uh, nursing home administrator on board, though we know that you'll continue through the, uh, you'll continue to play a very active role through recertification. Also just to acknowledge the dedication and hard work of everybody at Laguna Honda, our labor partners, SEIU and others, uh, for everything that they have done in order to go through the 90-day surveys, and in order to show the necessary improvements, in order to meet the milestones, engaging with the consistent care at the bedside initiative uh, to really uh, do everything that's necessary for uh, Laguna Honda to be prepared for the recertification surveys and to continue to provide excellent care, as was mentioned throughout this, uh, this uh, presentation and through the comments. So thank you very much, and thanks to everybody at Laguna Honda. Uh, we see and appreciate you, so.
6: Thank, Thank you. you. And as, as I tell the t- the, the, the uh, team, uh, recertification is a team effort.
0: Yeah. Yes, sir. All right. Thank you. Uh, we will move on to the next item on our agenda, uh, which is the director's report. And we have Dr. Navina Baba presenting the director's report this week. Welcome, Dr. Baba.
11: Thank you. Thank you, President. Um, so um, uh, my name is Naveena Baba. I'm the deputy director here at the Department of Public Health. It is my pleasure to present the director's report and um, we actually have a fairly meaty report today because um of the july 4th holiday so um we're, we're accounting for a missed session um one of the things i wanted to hi- there's a few things i want to highlight in the director's report one of them is the um expanded access to our behavioral health access center and expanded hours um so BHC, as it's um, known serves individuals who need um Uh, connections to both either mental health or substance use treatment. It is located at 1380 Howard. Um, People can get referred to it or walked in or can walk in. Um, It's co-located with the BHS pharmacy as well as our office-based buprenorphine induction clinic, um, which um, the office-based buprenorphine induction clinic has expanded its hours, as well um, as the um, behavioral health uh, pharmacy. Um, so, to match that and as well as to provide extra access to um, residents that need care um, in substance use and mental health, BHAC has um, made itself available on Saturdays and Sundays. This is an, an important uh, milestone, especially since BHAC serves individuals referred for substance use and mental health treatment from um, such areas as criminal just, the criminal justice system, hospitals, community nonprofits, and DPH clinics. The second um, item that I wanted to highlight was that DPH was awarded a multi-year state grant along with HSH. Um, so this grant will allow those that are experiencing serious behavioral health um, needs to have access to housing and services um, and um, will um, provide funding for that. Um, it will help support consistent and transitional and supportive living um, programs with a goal to connect individuals to long-term housing stability. And that's a multi-year um, grant um, and it, it amounts to $32 million. Um, another exciting um, announcements is that DPH and the sheriff's office um, have received a grant to administer Cal CalAIMS um, goal of getting um, pre-release Medi-Cal for those um, people in jail, those persons in jail. Um, Again, this is one of the really um, important initiatives um, happening at the state level. We do know that people fall out of healthcare when they go into jail. And so this is really critical prior to their release that we can get them back on Medi-Cal and they can have um, a warm handoff into our healthcare systems. Um, And then there's two other um, items that I wanna highlight. One is that um, as um, our overdose numbers um, continue within the city, Um, uh, the behavioral health um, uh, department has released a new RFP to address um, disparities. And this is specifically with um, that, it will allow for funding to um, provide overdose prevention, outreach, engagement, and education to the black African-American community. Um, Again, this is critical because um, black African-Americans are. Uh, overrepresented in the OD numbers. And we are hoping that um, the the people that will be applying will have um, the connections and the cultural um, congruency to um, be able to turn that tide. Um, There are three different programs that will be funded through this. One is a substance use and overdose um, presentations to the community. One is um, outreach to impacted communities. And then the final is additional program services um and then it was it's my pleasure i think many of you were at this um the dr david sanchez way street dedication that occurred last week um this was a wonderful ceremony that um honored longtime commissioner dr david sanchez who made um incredible contributions to san francisco Um, and in honor of that um, a street um, was named after him at zsfg and then finally, I wanted to end with that, the DPH Environmental Health um, participated in a Bayview Children's Day. Um, and this um, was a community organized event um, and staff at, from DPH were able to go out and talk about their services, including healthy housing, which um, tests for child-led poisoning and prevention. So an important population health initiative. Um, I'll end there and I'm happy to answer any questions.
0: Thank you, Dr. Baba. Uh, any public comment?
1: Folks on the line, we are on item, item five, the director's report. Uh, I see one hand. Jaime, may please um, unmute. Actually, I see two. Um, we'll take the first. Um, uh, Hi, may please unmute caller two, and then we'll go to the other caller.
5: Thank you, Mr. Morowitz. Can you hear me?
1: Yes, please begin.
5: Uh, thank you. Over the past year, it's been disappointing not hearing in Dr. Kovacs' director's reports anything about TPH's plans to add beds and facility capacity. Kovacs has not addressed TPH's plans to build out the shortage of a whole host of different types of facilities to provide various health services to various vulnerable San Franciscans. For instance, although the Health Commission has received data about the lack of enough subacute care beds in county, due in part to the 2017 closure of St. Luke's subacute SNF unit and the temporary opening of subacute beds at Daly's Hospital, neither Dr. Colfax in his bi-monthly director's reports nor the health commission have discussed plans to add bed capacity for any level of services in San Francisco. Clearly the city has a shortage of inpatient acute, subacute sniff, mental health, geropsych, and board and care beds. We can't raid Laguna Honda sniff beds, hoping to rapidly scale up mental health or behavioral health bets. This commission needs to schedule a presentation and discussion about the progress of other DPH committees examining the possibility of converting one of Laguna Honda's two patient hours into behavioral health bets. From Mr. Pickens' uh, previous comments, That preliminary plan and study is reportedly being prepared now for submission in September or October, but it should be presented to this commission now in open session before any decision is made definitively about borrowing Laguna Honda's sniff beds, which are in critically short supply to uh, uh, use for other types of patient populations. You need to expand the expand the capacity low level sort of all levels of facilities and not um, pit one constituency against another uh, health need of other constituents. Thank you.
1: Thank you, um, and please, I may please uh, mute the next caller. Caller, please let us know that you're there.
12: Hi, this is Dr. Janice Cohen, and I wanted to kind of uh, follow up on the previous speaker's comment in terms of um, the appropriate distribution of services and application of different strategies for how we we match patients in terms of their need with the appropriate services. And I was going to ask a question to the director regarding the behavioral health access increase in services. I was wondering if the program that we the Department of Public Health paid about i'd say $350,000 for maybe 10 years ago to Ken Minkoff and his program to integrate our substance use disorder and our mental health services at every level how that has been achieved and whether we have appropriate staff who can do the triaging as opposed to a lot of the social workers who have been placed in that position and who are for the most part driven by the flow plan as opposed to something like the American Association of Community Psychiatrists locus placement strategy. So I I guess my question is, um, what are we doing to make sure that people are getting screened, diagnosed and sent to the appropriate places and not to Laguna Honda when they should be in some sort of either substance use, mental health, or dual diagnosis treatment program or residential service. So my question is, are we going to have specific psychiatrists who are, I think, are the appropriate level of care doing the screening at these access levels to make sure that we're not sending People to inappropriate sites and that Laguna Honda Hospital is preserved for the population for which it is designed and for which it was built and which we desperately need to continue. So, thank you. That's both a question and a comment.
1: All right, thank you very much. Um, Just a reminder to the public, um, we of course value all input and but questions are not answered and there's not kind of a dialogue between the public. The commissioners can certainly um, take up your question And everyone has heard it and it'll be um, noted in the minutes. That's the only two callers we have on this item.
0: Commissioners, any comments or questions? Commissioner Chow. Uh,
9: Yes. uh, Thank you, Dr. Baba. And this was uh, an extremely uh, thorough report with uh, many topics. I I had two or three questions or requests Um, on the multi-year state grant. Uh, This was a um, grant now, as you say, for additional housing, uh, bridge housing. So bridge housing sounds like it's not permanent housing, but how many bridge housing slots do we currently have and how much will this actually uh, be able to increase? And, And while we're at that, it kind of reminds me, that I, I know we have thousands of other supported housing. So perhaps you could put bridge housing into that context. What what, what does the department actually do? I've, I've always been amazed at the number of uh, support services we actually do have for uh, mental health and substance abuse now, I think. So that was one question. Uh, the second was more a request that I thought that your a review of, Uh, our uh, status and work over the last uh, six months about the uh, open air drug markets were uh, very good. And you comment that as we are getting, or as uh, more data is available, it will be put in the public website. But I'm wondering if we could also get that here at the commission so that we can follow through with uh, the um, work and the success that the uh, mayor's initiatives are having. in uh, in regards to this disruption. Uh, And uh, lastly, uh, dealt with um, a topic you hadn't taken up yet, which was on the COVID-19 update, we keep seeing that hospitalizations are still pending a state uh, database. And uh, uh, recent uh, advice uh, to the public has been, check hospitalizations where you're going uh rather than the percent of positivity because that's uh, inaccurate and uh our own website doesn't carry that yet the state does carry data for san francisco so i'm not quite sure where uh our mismatch might be in the city and and i think we should get back to uh seeing if we can't at least if, if we can't do it here to just indicate the state, for example, last week indicated that we had 28 hospitalized patients. I'm not sure where they get the data. If we're saying we haven't been giving it with uh, 57 ICU beds available. So just asking if we can get back to getting hospitalization uh, numbers uh, onto our reports
11: sure thank you for those questions commissioner Chow. um so for the first one on bridge housing i don't know if anybody from behavioral health is on the line um but i will say i think in terms of the housing portions we would probably have to um, talk with hsh because that was a joint really our goal and role as you know is Um, because these folks have serious mental illness is to provide that wraparound, ensuring that they are able to stay within the housing. So we can get back to you in terms of um, HSH's projections, and as you said, all the different types of housing and why that was um, planned. I'm assuming it's because the full spectrum is needed for those people to move through until they get into permanent supportive housing just because of the backlog, but we'll get more information on that. Um, And then in terms of um, the um, open air drug markets, um, we will. We can send that to the commission. I just want to clarify that that is a, it is a um, initiative that is um, being led by um, SFPD and DM. And so the website will be the city website. It's not the DPH website. Um, and so those tracking and markers, as soon as those go up, we can definitely share that with the commission to follow along. Um, and then finally for the um, hospitalizations, I would um, invite um, health officer, Susan Phillip, to come up and, and speak a little bit about that.
13: Thank you, Dr. Baba, and good afternoon, commissioners. Um, so, thank you, um, uh, Dr. Chow, for your, your question, Commissioner Chow, about um, hospitalizations. So we, along with the other uh, counties in California, are uh, being told by our, our state colleagues that they 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 don't have the, the data, they have an issue with the data processing, and so we don't have our local data. You bring the point up that there are some data on the state website, so I don't have an answer for that. We'll have to reconcile and see what the issue may be. But our team is um, closely following that issue and trying to understand if there are data available when we can, the soonest we can get them um, included again I will say in general the overall trend statewide and nationally is to move away from 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 numbers from hard numbers because it is becoming harder uh, to track this uh, generally and we saw good news nationally that at a national level at least that excess deaths overall and from COVID are are decreasing so Covid is not gone. We know that, um, but our um, focus on it specifically, above all other uh, causes of, of potential infection or potential illness, um, is is shifting and continuing to evolve.
9: Sure. Uh, it was just that the state had such specific numbers. I thought that maybe uh, we had a different way of counting, but uh, just wanted you to look into it. And maybe yes. you can let us know.
13: Yes. We Thank will you. absolutely look into it. Thank you.
0: right commissioners questions or comments
10: commissioner christian thank you president bernal uh good afternoon dr baba uh i have a question regarding the 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 grant the 32 million dollar grant where the uh, participants in the care act program will be prioritized am i correct in understanding that that is the relationship uh, with the care court that is being established And what does it mean that they will be prioritized? I mean, it sounds like it's not exclusive uh, for their benefit, but how will that be determined?
11: So and as as you know, um, thank you for the question. Um, And as as you know, um, the care um, court is still in the process of being implemented. I think a lot of it will depend on the flow we see through that. Um, It is voluntary in nature. But one of the things that we can offer people is services and potentially housing. So I think that's part of this is we we're not sure exactly what the flow and volume will be, Um, it will probably start small just because of the need to set up all these systems. But this is um, one of the things that um, we will have access to as as these services get built out. Um I think what we can do is as care um, as the care courts you know um, become implemented, we can talk more about how that is functioning and then how it intersects with this. Um, but a lot of it is TBD.
10: So for a while, we're gonna have a a pot of money where we're not really sure how we're gonna distribute it. There will be people who need the beds but won't be able to access beds through this because they're not coming in through the care program.
11: So I think um, initially I will have to check on this, but um, yes, the the fiscal year 2324, we will get some money Um, and if if the care court system has not fully been implemented or has not been fully stood up, I'm assuming that others can access these resources, but we can definitely get back to you with more information.
10: Thank you. I look forward to receiving that information as it comes in because it, you know, just the the concept of it, I understand, but um, functionally, if there are people who. Uh, need funding for beds, but they're not getting it because there's only a trickle in care court and they're reserving the money for care court. That's going to be a tricky dance, I think.
0: I did have a few questions as well, but first I just wanted to, uh, you had mentioned the uh, dedication of Dr. David Sanchez away at San Francisco General Hospital. It was uh, my privilege to represent the commission. At that, uh, at that ceremony, uh, Vice President Green was there as well, and I just wanted to thank uh, the other commissioners for allowing us to share their sentiments about David as we knew him and his uh, long standing service and the respect and admiration we had for him. Um, and also to uh, express our condolences and thanks to his wife Barbara and the rest of his family for sharing him with us and the people of San Francisco for so many years in his public service. Um, I did have a few quick questions. The first is about the Behavioral Health Access Center. Um, It's really great news that the hours have been expanded into evenings and also now on weekends. If people come in and are seeking treatment or if they've been referred to treatment, have we had a situation where someone's needed to be turned away because we didn't have the resources to offer to them?
11: Um, in general, no. I mean, one of the things with the Behavioral Health Access Center is it really does try to figure out what your need is mm. and do what resource do we have. Mm. And then also, I mean, obviously, if somebody's insured, that might be another kind of point of where we would have to refer to other systems of care. Mm. Um, but in general, mm. um, there is, especially with medication-assisted treatment, mm. there's plenty of access there. Um, and even with substance use treatment beds um, and mental health beds, there is um, so I have not heard of, I am sure there are potential you know, times where um, there may have been somebody turned away, but in general, we are able to accommodate the needs. Great,
0: thank you. And my other question was with regard to the public safety initiative to disrupt open air uh, <clears throat> drug markets. Um, you had mentioned, and thank you for mentioning that, that this is an operation that's being led, I believe by the police department, the sheriff's office and the department of emergency management. Um, Just just to clarify, my understanding is that the role of DPH is to offer, particularly when it relates to someone who may have been detained because of their open air drug use, is to offer uh, treatment services both while they're detained and upon release, and that is an extension of our responsibility under law with the state of California for our jail health services. Is that correct?
11: That is correct.
0: Okay. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, And just the last thing I wanted to mention, I don't think this has been mentioned at a commission meeting yet, but there was a wonderful study that was recently put out with regard to San Francisco's COVID response and how effective it was, particularly as as it's compared to other major cities throughout the country. Um, So, uh, you know, again, I, I say effective, not successful because it was a horrible situation to begin with. But, you know, the work that was done to keep, you know, transmission rates low to, to you know, while, while every death is tragic to, to severely limit the number of people who died from COVID in San Francisco, and also the community partnerships that were so successful in deploying uh, resources into San Francisco. Is there anything uh, we can share about that report either uh you or a health officer uh about that report and any takeaways and where people might be able to view it
11: yes uh, we can definitely send the link um and make sure that people have access to the report Um, and it was um it was authored um by several people within the department but i I do want to say dr um, sachdave who's now at the state was one of the main authors um, and really um, nicely describes in that report all of um, the different ways that we um worked to mitigate the effects of COVID and, and some of the places that we were successful and some of the places where there are challenges that we can grow upon um, as we respond to these threats in the future.
0: Of course, of course, it's all a learning process too. So thank you to you, to uh, Director Colfax, Dr. Phillip, and many others who contributed to that report. Um, Any other questions or comments? If not, we can move on to the next item on the agenda, which is the San Francisco EMS agency update. Andrew Holcomb, who's the EMS agency director, and Dr. John Brown, who's the medical
1: director of EMS as well. And gentlemen, feel free to adjust the microphone as you need it.
14: Good afternoon. Uh, Thank you, commissioners for having us. Uh, You know, reflecting on the last time I think I've uh, been in this room, I don't think we've been in since uh, pre-COVID. So it's nice to see everyone in in person today. So um, again, my name is Andrew Holcomb. I'm the EMS director. And
15: and, uh, John Brown, medical director, San Francisco
14: EMS agency. uh, Next slide, please wanted to do a couple of introductions. Uh, we've got some of our uh, department leadership here today, so um, I'd like to introduce uh, Executive Director, Mary Ellen Carroll, uh, Deputy Director, uh, Rob Smuts, um, our Quality Improvement Deputy uh, Director, Elena Gunn, and our Operations Deputy Director, Kaylee Hillcoat, um, that are here with us today. Um, and just wanted to uh, you know acknowledge their support um, in, in putting this together. Uh, next slide. So on this slide, I just wanted to clarify uh,
15: the uh, role of the EMS agency and its relationship to the Department of Health, and then to the EMS uh, system of regulation in California, Uh, because I know some of the commissioners are new, and and thank you commissioners for having us and for the opportunity to present our work to you. I think it's critical personally, uh, as Dr. Chow knows, because I've been here many, many times, that the Health Commission, the Director of Health, have the continuing medical oversight for EMS care in the community. So the state of California has a shared governance model. The state EMS authority has designated 34 local EMS agencies. We are one of them. They generally correspond to the counties uh, in the state. And we uh, report to the California EMS authority on certain issues. For instance, uh, Director Holcomb just said in our 700 plus page annual EMS plan that the state has to review and approve. Um, However, much of the care that's going on in San Francisco is specific and tailored to our community. So we in the EMS agency now report and bring this to you in the EMS commission. I am an employee of the Department of Public Health and I report uh, through a chain of authority to the health officer, uh, Dr. Phillip, and to the director, Dr. Colfax, uh, and uh, to you in the health commission. There are two uh, fellows who are senior physicians that have finished their EMS sorry, their emergency medicine residencies and are working for us in EMS Medicine for a year and they report to myself uh, as well as to Dr. Mercer, who's the fellowship director at UCSF San Francisco General Hospital. And then the chain of authority for the EMS agency, which is housed in the Department of Emergency Management, is in this diagram. And there are two branches of the agency. One is for operations and conducts all of our operational efforts. The other is for quality improvement. And that'll be the section I'll be talking on more in just a few minutes in the presentation.
14: Thank you. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, so I wanted to talk a little bit about hiring for the EMS agency. Um, we most definitely prioritize that for last fiscal year. Um, We've recently promoted and filled our two deputy positions to manage both sections of quality improvement and operations. Um, I recognize the slide says that the EMS certification specialist is starting soon. Uh, We actually hired them last week so uh, keep knocking out some of those vacant positions. We also um, are sharing a half-time position with our colleagues over in uh, public health emergency preparedness and response for joint data projects um, where we can collaborate between departments and divisions um, on you know things like uh, climate change EMS response disaster preparedness and so we're really excited to have that position go live this summer Um, and then we've also been working on our three EMS specialist vacancies Um, we anticipate um, some hiring in August of this year um, and we You know, it has been a very challenging uh, class to fulfill, um, but we recently have um, through the Department of Emergency Management, a recruiter, and so we're going to plan on working with um, that individual to address um, some of those challenges. For this upcoming fiscal year, we do not anticipate any additional uh, FTE positions for the EMS agency. However, we do anticipate um, additional revenue to support the growing breadth of our programs and portfolio of projects um, that continually being added to the agency. Uh, Next slide. So strategy and priorities for the upcoming year. Um, So really we're we're number one priority and focused on is the community paramedicine and triage to alternate destination act of 2020. Um, This is AB 1544 that was passed some time ago, Um, created statute, which then determined regulations to the state. Um, And so now we are on a one-year timeline uh, to meet those, those requirements. Um, They went into effect in October. Um, And so we have until the end of October this year to um, get all of our regulatory requirements um, submitted to the state and approved. Um, So essentially what this means is that for uh, the fire department's EMS six community paramedicine program, which is a pilot is moving to a full program implementation under AB 1544 for triage to alternate destination. We have two sites in San Francisco that are under pilot that are moving to full program implementation as well. That is the uh, San Francisco Department of Public Health Sobering Center. And then also the VA is considered in scope for AB 1544. Um, PES is exempt. So in uh, EMS regulations, paramedics may only transport to emergency departments. The triage to alternate destination act provides the ability to go to sobering centers, Uh, behavioral health centers, and then the VA. So we're working to move all of those programs over, um, which is agreements, data sharing, training, accreditation. um, The list goes on and on, and we're full steam ahead um, to meet that deadline um, by the end of October. Uh, We also are keeping a very close eye on and working with our ambulance availability. um, And so ensuring that we have ambulances in the system and able to respond to disasters and event um, and surges within 911 call volume. Another priority is uh, patient offload times and diversion. Uh, We're continuing our workgroup efforts, um, data sharing, collaboration with all of our different partners. We'll talk about that in just a few minutes. Um, Again, prioritizing public education and outreach, um, trying to get all of our data consolidated into one place that's timely, informative, um, and transparent. And then finally, also, submitting some of our outstanding specialty plans to the state EMS authority, which includes our stroke plan and our STEMI uh, cardiac plan as well. Next slide. So I'm gonna speak to some of the operations, then Dr. Brown will take over um, for some of our quality improvement updates. Um, The two first, the two bullet points um, for patient offload times diversion um, and our pilot program, we'll go into just a little bit more detail in a moment. Um, But I do wanna highlight that we are working on a new medical planning platform. So if a promoter wants to host an event in San Francisco, some of the larger events, um, medical assets are required as part of that um, that event. And so we are redesigning that planning platform, recognizing how important special events are to the city. Um, And so we're working in that space, working with uh, many different departments um, as part of that process, replacing our old legacy system. And then as we come out of COVID, we've had some more bandwidth to do exercise, disaster training and drills. And so we continue to be focused on that. You can see it in some of the photos of a reflection of that um, moving forward. Uh, next slide. So I wanna talk just a little bit about ambulance diversion. So last time that we visited the Health Commission um, in July of 2022, Um, Our highest utilizer of diversion was San Francisco General at 68% on a monthly basis. Um, We have worked exhaustively with San Francisco General and want to um, acknowledge Dr. Susan Ehrlich and her team, her staff at the General. Um, Last month and in the month of May, we had 37% uh, diversion, which is a tremendous effort to be able to do that. We've also seen a decrease in the time in which across the system, diversion is suspended, which is also a healthy metric as well. Um, our goal is 30%, so we're not quite there yet, but we're well on our way to progress towards that goal. Um, I know there's a couple questions about the state of Caddy and some of our ambulance distribution programs. Um, Caddy started in 2020 during the pandemic. In January of 2022, um, Caddy was a very manual, um, you know, intensive process. Now that is automatic under a program called EMS Alert, which automatically routes ambulances through existing systems. And um, that provides ambulance distribution across the city to help level load those ambulances and also reduce the number of surge events or ambulance bunching um, into the, the healthcare system in hospitals. Uh, next slide. In tandem with ambulance diversion, is ambulance patient offload times. You might hear the term APOT or APOD um, reflecting these metrics. So we did see a pretty substantial increase during the flu season over the winter months, um, which is not uncommon for uh, ambulance volumes to go up during this this time of year. Um, but those are very, very significant numbers. Um, and so we have taken um, dramatic steps. We have a biweekly work group um, with hospital uh, leaders, um, executives, data folks um, trying to get everyone together to address this issue. We've had several policy changes um, and we're working as hard as we can to, um, you know, make those changes and and make those improvements um, to reduce ambulance patient offload times. Uh, We have a number of hospitals that are doing their own studies, analysis um, and review to help address ambulance patient offload. And, The other big sort of piece to all of this is that we've engaged with the San Francisco Controllers Office, and they are currently in the middle of a review of doing essentially a 360 around diversion and ambulance patient offload times. We expect that report to come out this summer. We'll be happy to share it. It's gonna be a public document about, you know, ideas in terms of within the EMS system, within the overall global healthcare system, to, um, and ideas to work on to help reduce some of uh, these you know, these issues within the EMS system. So we're looking forward to that report. Um, they've interviewed a number of folks um, as part of that document and we look forward to working to implement some of those, those solutions where we can as a local EMS agency. Um, next slide. The other operations update that we have is traditionally 911 response in San Francisco for ambulance transport is solely 100% ALS. Um, And throughout COVID, we added basic life support ambulances, which is two EMTs um, and no paramedic um, to help augment the system for surge um, and to assist with ambulance patient offload times. So by adding BLS, um, we decided, we saw that it was effective during COVID And so we approached the state about our, um, a a more permanent solution or a pilot program for adding a BLS tier within the 911 system. And so our three 911 providers are eligible to provide up to four ambulances staffed on a regular basis. Um, This is some of the data initial data that we've um, collected um, and it's been very great on a number of fronts. Uh, One, it it improves ambulance availability. It helps when our, um, you know, paramedic staffing and recruitment is challenging. Um, It also provides a a unique opportunity for EMTs who are new into the EMS um, field to to get some experience with 911 calls. Um, And so it's been a really uh, successful pilot. Um, We continue to review the data. Um, And then finally, it also helps with the ambulance offload delays. So we maximize that ALS capability and availability to respond to those critical immediate need uh, life-threatening calls where advanced interventions are are most appropriate so um, we're working on that program Um, and finally uh, if you want to next slide here's just a reflection showing how much bls is being used Um, it's it's a couple of percent um, but it has huge dividends for the system as it as it provides um, you know additional ambulance availability um, on a day-to-day basis so with that i uh, turn it over to Dr. Brown, talk about quality improvement.
15: I could have the next slide, please. Thank you. So I'd like to just highlight a few of our quality improvement uh, initiatives and then community outreach that we have been doing. Our quality improvement program is getting more and more robust under uh, Elena Gunn's leadership and we try to drive it by clinical practice and research. We have a research advisory committee as well as a quality improvement committee that are meeting on a quarterly basis with members of the community uh, in research, the community involved in quality improvement from our provider agencies, including our hospitals, to help inform us as we go through this process. We have QI plan elements for trauma, pediatrics, STEMI and stroke, and now we're developing one for this community paramedic and uh, triage to alternate destination programs because we optimally like to take advantage of all treatment capabilities in our system in San Francisco, not just be restricted to only the kind of the traditional emergency departments, which has been the case in the past, but to do that safely and effectively for our patients. I uh, want to acknowledge also uh, our QI Director, Elena Gunn's work in terms of helping us attract some great uh, interns in the program from Masters in Public Health graduate level and undergraduate level. So we've had quite a bit of help in revising and reviewing our policies and protocols. Again, to bring them up to date and up to speed with what's uh, happening in our community needs. Um, I wanna focus on one element of this in the next few slides, which is on cardiac arrest, which we've come before and talked about, and I think it's important we keep you abreast of that development. If we could have the next slide, please. So this statistic presents, and I know there's a lot of information on this slide, um, and I'm happy to share with you the um, uh, report, that's the nationwide report from the registry we participate in. Since, uh, before actually 2015, we have participated in the CARES registry, which is the Cardiac Arrest Registry to Enhance Survival. This is a nationwide initiative uh, driven out of originally the CDC and Emory School of Health in Atlanta, and now encompasses about 30 to 40% of the US population. The entire state of California is a participant in this, and it's a way of comparing apples to apples and oranges to oranges in terms of cardiac arrest survival. What you can see here are different types of indicators that we follow and try to improve. Um, The Utstein criteria listed in the first and second is a way of saying, it's a shorthand of saying, this is a very standardized way of reporting our success in cardiac arrest. I'm pleased to say that we're doing better than the national averages. You can see there for 2022, we have 39% survival from the first category of Utstein, which is witnessed arrest by bystander and found in a shockable rhythm, such as ventricular fibrillation. And then we have um, 39% in Utstein 2, which adds on the component of getting some bystander CPR. So we can see a beneficial effect from bystander CPR. We are approximately 10 and 5% above the national averages in those categories. So we're making progress. I can remember when we had the 50th anniversary of CPR, big celebration front in City Hall. We were down almost in the single digits. We were about 10% in these categories. So we made good progress. We're above the national average, but we still have a ways to go. We can still do better. The two areas that we're gonna focus on, and I'll talk about in the next slide, are at the bottom of that matrix, where it talks about AED, which is automatic external defibrillator, used by the public, and then CPR by bystanders. You can see there we're at um, 13% and 28%. Nationwide AED use is about that. It's about 11 to 12%, but the CPR by bystander rate is lower than it is in nationwide. It's about 40% nationwide. So we want to improve both categories and it's uh, really reaching into the community and trying to partner with community partners to do this. One of the ways we've done this is through an innovative program uh, partnering with a dispatch agency and this is called the PulsePoint app and I'm gonna highlight that for the next two slides. I can get the next slide, please. So this is a an app anyone can download on their phone. It is free and it's offered through uh, our, our connection with our website. What it does is it, it, it uh, informs uh, people that register for this that have the uh, ability to perform CPR and are interested in helping their neighbors um, that where there's a CPR situation or a cardiac arrest, potential cardiac arrest, within a short distance from them, and it's in a public place that they are notified so that they can go to provide CPR. It also helps them by notifying where the nearest automatic external defibrillator is placed. We have approximately 800 programs in the city that have registered with us that have AEDs, and we're now in the process of purchasing more ourselves and distributing to community partners at the end of of, uh, some of the response elements for the pandemic, where we had some sites that were closed down and we had AEDs that were freed up. Uh, We had a partnership with faith-based organization in the Bayview-Hunters Point, for instance, to distribute um, these automatic defibrillators to places where their communities were gathered. Again, it has the protective effect. If it's available, very easy to use, the app will tell individuals who are registered for it uh, where it is. If I I have the next slide, please. Oh, and one thing before we leave the slide, sorry, could you? back in that lower right-hand corner, we also were fortunate to partner with City EMT and with the fire department. I'll talk about that more in just another couple slides. Uh, and this was some filming that was done uh, in the Bayview-Hunters Point to emphasize this is an area where uh, cardiac arrest uh, frequency is high and the distribution of AEDs is relatively low, uh, and we want to try and improve that. So uh, we're trying to outreach in different ways to the community. Can I have The next slide, please. So this is the progress of our PulsePoint app. Uh, It was launched in August of 2022, um, and we're now to the level of approximately a thousand active users. Active users are those that have registered, sorry, not just registered, but have actually checked their app within the last 30 days and then people that are registering new as well Uh, we don't have a goal specifically for the app our goal overall is to increase our bystander cpr rate to the national average of 40 percent the reason this is so critical is as you saw earlier slide that's about a five percent improvement in survival rate if administered uh, cpr is administered by bystanders and that's across the board however how long it takes from the moment the bystander recognizes the situation to the point they start it. But the quicker they start it and the quicker an AED is available, the higher the survival rate. And the survival rate increases approximately 10% if both the AED and the bystander CPR is initiated per minute. So, in other words, if we can get uh, someone there within two minutes instead of within 10 minutes, that's a, a tremendous improvement and increase in survival. If I could have the next slide, please. And this is to highlight some of the specific community outreach and events. We have a goal now of once a month providing ourselves with our own staff, uh, interns uh, and trainees, once a month that we are at community events, providing uh, CPR instruction, providing information about AEDs, providing the um, app so that people uh, can be interested and develop uh, some CPR ability, bystander CPR ability. We recently had a participation in a rodeo, bicycle rodeo, so we did not only some information on trauma with the trauma center, but also with our CPR and AED. And then we've also participated in stroke education. And I wanna here also mention that we are focused at the agency, and it's because it's two departments. Each department has goals and standards for improving and increasing diversity, equity, and inclusion so we've had trainings for our staff on the dem side with a series of three courses Uh, we try to focus on community events that are outreaching into communities that are underserved and disproportionately uh, affected by cardiac arrest uh, with also some differences in bystander CPR rates and uh, response intervals. And then uh, we are trying to promote EMS careers at various levels. So we've been actively involved with each of the cadres or cohorts of students going through city EMT, which is a great program it's a partnership and a combination between the fire department and the the mayor's office of economic development for drawing from communities of color for students to enter into the pathway to uh, get jobs in EMS in the fire department and then it's my personal pleasure that in these classes I've taught 20% or more want other careers they want to go further in the healthcare field So I've been helping to secure partnerships around education and nursing and medicine and so on. So I think it's a really important outreach for us to get uh, into our workforce, into our EMS workforce, a true reflection of the diversity of our community. And if I could have the last slide. So this is a picture of our staff at our EMS Awards. We continue to do this annually and certainly you're you're all invited. We had a, uh, a record high after about 15 plus years. We had over 80, Uh, nominations for EMS awards, so we had to actually increase the categories. We had so many people and so much good work going on in EMS. But I wanted to use this slide to say, what is it that I'm hoping (coughs) and asking for your support in our our work? Um, I would say one of the important things is to continue to support this effort to decrease the rates of ambulance diversion and delays in offloading patients in the emergency departments. I think this is critical for keeping those EMS units in the system serving patients on a regular basis. Um, As you're probably aware, we only have a single trauma center in our system. It's a wonderful facility. I work there, I, I, I wholly endorse it. I was just there working clinically yesterday, watching all the staff as I was helping to stay off of ambulance diversion by lots of innovative ways of treating patients and I have utmost respect for my nursing colleagues and physician colleagues and staff colleagues of all levels there. But it's a single facility, so we kind of have all our eggs in one basket and we do need to have a backup or additional trauma capacity in the system. We've engaged this through various means. Just recently myself, Dr. Cushieri and Dr. Caldwell came out with an article in the San Francisco Marine Medical Society Journal about why this is important and what the possible solutions are we've engaged interest from consultants we're going to need resources to move forward with this but i do think we need to have uh, some increased capacity there we want to improve our cardiac arrest survival especially those areas around getting more aeds into the community and more participation by cpr by bystanders and decreasing our response intervals so that we can get ems personnel to the scene quickly as well And the last element is we have strong medical oversight in our system, and I think that's critical for delivering good EMS care. Our base hospital, San Francisco General, Has been amazing and wonderful in helping us with this i think they are going to need to get some support for this program so far they've been doing it without resource support and just recently a good example is we had our wonderful pride celebrations we had a last minute glitch where the medical group had all of their equipment stolen we had to replace it all within four hours and get them up and running and they took care of 60 patients and only one was transported by ambulance so that's an idea of how within four hours the hospital was uh, helping us tremendously so i think in future we're going to look for some support for that base hospital program uh to improve and enhance our medical oversight with that i think we conclude our presentation and happy to take questions thank
0: you thank you so much uh secretary morris do you have any public comments yes
1: uh we do Uh, Folks online, we're on item six, the San Francisco EMS Agency update. I see one hand. If you'd like to make um, a comment, please press star three. Jaime, please unmute caller five.
5: Mr. Menech, you've got three minutes. Thank you so much, uh, Mr. Morowitz. I just wanna commend both um, uh, Mr. Holocom and Dr. Brown. When I supported Robert Smuts and his staff from the Department of uh, Emergency Communications, and Rob Dudgeon, the director of DEM's Division of Emergency Services. I had limited uh, contact with Dr. Brown, but I believe the EMSA um, agency under his leadership, is doing great work. Um, as a San Franciscan who occasionally has to use ambulance services, I can't thank um, Mr. Smuts and Dr. Brown enough uh, for my good fortune to have been treated very, very well by it. The emergency ambulance driver. So, thank you, Dr. Brown. That is the only caller. All
0: right, commissioners, comments or questions? Commissioner Dorado.
16: I just want to make a comment to say thank you very much, since I had so many questions, and that um, I fully understand, um, you know, the your answers, and it was really extremely helpful to further understand uh, the excellent work you do.
2: So thank you very much.
0: Vice President Green.
2: Yes, thank you very much for this clear presentation. You really did clear up a lot of the abbreviations and so forth, which which we really appreciate. It's very excellent. So I, I had two questions, one for each of you. When it comes to the um, uh, uh, bystander um, uptake, what do you think the barriers are? For example, if someone in the community wanted to learn CPR, is it obvious uh, where they can go? And then, you know, correlate to that is with this app. I actually have it, but I'm wondering if we have any sense for what the uptake is and whether we've done outreach, for example, to hospital staffs and to our nursing unions and other organizations just to raise awareness, because I suspect a lot of people would be willing to participate if they, if they had the knowledge that this was a possibility.
14: I can take that question, so uh, thank you for the question. Um, You know, as part of our outreach efforts, we absolutely, uh, the PulsePoint app, flyers, um, everything that we have to get people signed up, um, we've been doing that. I would also recommend um, if, you know, folks visit our website at sf.gov slash EMSA. We overhauled the website last year, and front page right on the website is how to sign up to get CPR training and get more information, and so we want to draw community members in um, it gets emailed straight to our, our office, and then you know we participate in, in some of these events um, as, as much as possible. And so completely encourage um, the use of that, and um, absolutely take your recommendation and, and trying to get it out to as many folks as possible, labor groups, uh, medical groups, community groups, um, so that we can get as much uptake as possible. Um, it's, it's a life-saving app and tool.
2: Yeah, I suspect a lot of our community partners would love to, a direct feed. Uh, and delighted to hear it's posted on the website. the The other question I had really is about the offloads and the diversions, because the the range of time is is quite diverse here. And I, you know I was looking this up over the weekend, and California Healthcare Foundation had done a you know best practices a few years ago for uh, diversion. And I know that the California Hospital Association has also done the same for offload time. So, I think when I read the answer to one of your questions um, that one of the other commissioners has submitted, it sounded like each hospital was doing its own thing. And yet it sounds like, I mean, this has been going on. I, one of the articles was from 2013. So we've been thinking through this problem for so long. And I'm wondering whether we are trying to incorporate best practices. We did such a good job collaboratively with regard to COVID among the hospitals and the hospital council. So I wonder if you can elaborate a little more on. I know it, it, it's different microclimes in the different hospitals, and yet this is a nationwide, if not a global problem with both diversions and offloads. And working at CPMC, there is not a day that goes by. There isn't at least two ambulances in the driveway there sitting. So you know just visually, I know it's a big problem, and that's such a waste of resource. So I wonder if you have any thoughts about that.
15: I'll, I'll start, and then I'll turn it to, over to Andrew to, to comment on the operational side. But, but from the medical oversight side, um, I think both ambulance patient offload delays and ambulance diversions are a bad thing. Right? In in an ideal world, they would be a zero and what our uh, meaning zero ambulance diversion and then what our target is for the ambulance patient offload time, which is 20 minutes. Um, the problem in the reality is that we have various congestions to the flow or the throughput uh, in our hospital system. Our post uh, post acute care hospital system as well. We do have a responsibility and and, and, and that is outside the, the purview of the MS agency. What is within our purview is trying to safely decrease the demand for ambulance services. How can we safely meet patients' needs in the field without putting them in the back of ambulances ambulance and taking them to the emergency department? So that's why we put so much effort into community paramedics and triage to alternate destinations. I've been involved with all of the cohorts of the community paramedic training and so on too to get this, uh, utilize this resource. It's a wonderful resource. We have wonderful providers in our system. My hat's off to them. They work you know, 24 uh, seven in very, very difficult circumstances, but they bring a lot to the scene. Let's maximize that assessment and their ability uh, and the resources in the system wherever possible to what we call level load and get the right patient at the right time to the right place. So I think that those things help but we are dependent to some degree on other factors uh, in the treatment care system, and I'm, I'm pleased to see you know, progress in areas like Laguna Honda and so on, and that's gonna help and make a difference, I think, in the ambulance uh, bay as well.
14: Yeah, just speaking a little bit, and thank you for the question about some of the, the operational side of you know, offload delays. Um, you know, we, we very much collaborate and speak with hospital executives and leaders. We provide daily data to some of these um, folks to help collaborate and address um, some of the EMS data. And so that collaboration is key to making improvements um, within ambulance patient offload times. Um, and speaking with a lot of the um, hospital executive and leaders, each hospital has a bit of a different flavor when it comes to some of the rationale for um, offload delays. In some cases, it's it could be staffing. In some cases, it could be inpatient. In some cases it's, you know, um, a bunch of EMS calls in a certain area and and crews are transporting to a certain location. And so each sort of hospital has its own own little um, take on ambulance patient offloads. So where we can, as an EMS system, um, find those efficiencies, implement those additional policies, we're, you know, absolutely trying to do that as, as to the extent that we can. And then, in looking bigger across the system, we're we're thrilled with the controller's office review because that's going to give a framework for you know a healthcare system um, to help reduce this issue. And so, then that draws people to the table to help um, you know address these sort of concerns. I would just add one additional
15: comment, and I think best practices go a long way. So I I hope that in the consideration of future changes to the healthcare system, such as what I've been reading about in the lay press about UCSF, St. Mary's, St. Francis, you can see in our list that their ambulance diversion rates and ambulance patient offload times are quite different, right? So ideally, as these systems change, improve, merge, et cetera, they're copying the best practices and not the worst practices so that more and more patients will benefit.
2: Well, thank you. Yeah, these are one of the most challenging issues in healthcare delivery. So it's really great to hear that you are so thoughtful and working so well to try to solve this big conundrum.
10: Commissioner
0: Guillermo.
4: Thank you. And thank you both for your presentations. Very informative. Um, I had a couple questions, uh, one on, um, uh, uh, for Mr. Holcomb and one for, uh, Dr. Er, Uh, the BLS, a program that you uh, referred to in your presentation, could you describe the actual programmatic elements of that uh, a little bit more, just for those of us who are not familiar uh, with it, and because it seemed that you uh, are quite pleased with uh, uh, the pilot so far and uh, supporting its expansion. Um, And so uh, describe the program a little bit and then its impact.
14: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, thank you for the question. The BLS program, so traditionally, uh, ALS ambulances respond to 911 calls um, in times of high demand in the system. So, you know, for instance, New Year's Eve, uh, heat waves, we add BLS ambulances into the system because a lot of those calls um, can be, you know, managed by, you know, an EMT crew or a basic life support crew. Um, And so that provides greater ambulance availability while still maintaining safe and proper care for those patients that need that care, you know, most timely. Um, And so, That was very much on a temporary sort of ad hoc basis, you know, when disaster strikes. Um, Looking at the effectiveness of that, as we had the opportunity through COVID, where we had that continuous approval to add that capacity into the EMS system, you know, not knowing what what could happen with COVID um, at that time, we found that there were very, um, there were instances where it was nice to have those extra ambulances, when we have that variability of 911 calls throughout the system, those mini surges. And so that provides more ambulances to respond to those calls while you know, keeping some of those ALS resources for those critical life, you know, threatening immediate calls of needing that advanced care available to run to that call. Um, s- sort of jumping back to um, Vice President Green's question, you know, with the ambulance offload delays, we'd much rather have a BLS ambulance on the wall at the hospital versus an als ambulance on the wall at the hospital um, and so as we see those those apot times go up that bls provides a, a temporary solution to help manage some of those apot issues and then the resounding you know response times as a result of that um, so programmatically we saw that through covid um, we asked the state for you know approval within our ems plan um, and then in november of 2022 we uh, have our three 911 ALS providers. Um, you know, have a maximum of four ambulances of BLS in the system on a day-to-day mm-hmm. basis, um, up to to have that regular scheduling so that it's more consistent. Um, you know, crews can bid out their schedules and it can be pre-scheduled as opposed to you know ad hoc adding BLS into the
15: system. So, if I could draw your attention to one measure that I think shows the safety of the system, you should have it in the BLS program data. There's a Uh, breakdown of the uh, responses by code two code three that bls goes to code two is regular driving rules code three is red lights and siren maximum speed so um, what i draw your attention to is and and if you don't have it i apologize we'll be sure you do have it it's the
6: return
15: in other words Mm -hmm. after they have interfaced done their assessment with the patient do they come to the hospital with the patient red lights and siren or regular driving code two and it's about six percent in other words 94% of the time the dispatch is accurate. The EMTs are doing a great job taking care of the patient. The patient can be safely transported at normal rate of speed to the hospital. That's about what it is for our paramedics also. It has to do with the success and the difficulty or the the challenges of doing dispatch and determining from a caller what the actual patient is going to be like when the uh, EMS providers are assessing the patient. So my point is the, the variation between EMTs and paramedics in terms of they're getting the correct amount, uh, correct type of calls and they're treating the patients appropriately is pretty good. So that's something we're gonna continue to watch. We don't want that to be a high number. In other words, we don't wanna have EMTs find a patient so critical that now they're having to transport them code three to the hospital. If that makes sense.
4: Thank you. I I, um, was just thinking about all of the uh, uh, events that are held in San Francisco that are increasingly drawing bigger crowds. Uh, whether they be, you know, the, you know, outside lands and you know, Golden Gate Park or, you know, street celebrations and such uh, that the the need for uh, more BLS type of, of uh, response versus an ALS response is something that, you know, aside from the, you know, pandemic related in you know, experience that there might be data on how this program is going to work with the, the Uh, um, with the increasing numbers of of people coming into San Francisco, or if they live in San Francisco, uh, experiencing uh, that. And then on the other hand, there is the day-to-day sort of occurrences in San Francisco of, you know, those who are either homeless or, you know, experiencing mental health and substance abuse. And what is the relationship of that pilot program, or the need to dispatch different types, with that? And so, it'd be just interesting to have uh, some sort of analysis over time on the effectiveness of, you know, the program relative to the different types of experiences that are going on day to day, as well as special events in San Francisco. So, um, you know, at some point, maybe in the next report, or maybe in a. I mean, because I know it takes time to take the data and do the analysis, and it might not even be collecting data in that way. Uh, but it would be very interesting to see that. My other question then is uh, for Dr. Brown around the trauma, uh, the need to expand or support greater trauma. How, how will that happen? It's not a, it's not a, uh, I mean, trauma by its very nature is not something that's gonna bring income. Uh, it's not reimbursable to the degree that it costs. Uh, and so I'm just sort of wondering what, what Uh, are the kinds of things that need support from the commission or from department or from the public in order to be able to uh, increase the ability of very needed trauma services uh, uh, in San Francisco. Sure,
15: Uh, that's that's a great uh, question, Commissioner, and one that is one of the reasons it's not solved, right? Because it's been uh, under consideration for quite some time. There are, I think, three basic potential routes, just putting in general routes. One is that a a facility in the city become a level three trauma center. In other words, a trauma center capable of taking care of all different levels of patients, but focusing its practice on the uh, the lower acuity or more mundane kinds of trauma patients. Uh, the second possibility would be the development of a pediatric trauma facility, which of course would likely be one, of, we only have two pediatric critical care centers in the city, the Ben S. campus of CPMC and the Mission Bay campus, Benioff of UCSF. Uh, at that facility could be doing regular pediatric trauma care and then in case of a surge, such as, and the thing that to be perfectly honest, I am most concerned about is a large scale shooting event where we have a very rapid uh, influx of very acute trauma patients into our system, right? Um, So in situations like that, a pediatric trauma center would be positioned to then move into uh, an adult Uh, trauma center for the period of that surge or disaster. And the third possibility is a community facility that would be designated as the backup or a backup center. And they would have to have staffing and supplies that would be available to it that could augment the trauma uh, center that we currently have. None of those three options are immediately clear and apparent and, and something that would be easily doable. That's why we engage this process with getting consultant interest because there have been other communities that have had other types of trauma issues where it takes an analysis of the community, the income, the payer mix, the injury mix, all those types of things. That's a a lot of data to analyze and then a lot of outreach to do whatever the proposed solutions are to develop a consensus around it and and eventually to solve the problem. So uh, it is a a big uh, process, but it's one that I think we are bound to engage in and continue simply because of this fact, even if everything goes well, if just something were to happen to San Francisco, General Hospital for any reason, it could not take trauma patients. Um, you know, a, a, a disaster like an earthquake or something where the facility is so badly damaged, we will have to rely on community resources to take care of trauma. That might be, the, I guess, a fourth option. That every center becomes somewhat of a lower level of uh, trauma capable center. Uh, but we need preparation. We need uh, exercising, etc., and uh, we, we need to do it as quickly as possible.
4: Thank you. And and to the extent that, you know, the solutions are not just, they don't just rest within the county and that the private sector also uh, has to be not just part of it, but I think it's in many ways leading uh, um, uh, some of these solutions, uh, whatever support I think that we can provide uh, around that, I think, and discussions around that, I think, is important for us to know about.
9: Thank you. Commissioner Chow. Yes, uh, thank you, and and thank you especially to uh, Dr. Brown, whom uh, he and I have known each other for many years here. In fact, in his honor, I'm wearing a tie on <laughs> this. Uh, this, uh, uh, th- this has been a very important topic, as you know, for all of us and for the commission, Dr. Brown, and both the public health department and uh um, the new EMS uh, through the Department of uh, Emergency Services and of course the uh, partnership with the fire department all of us uh, many of us uh, and you and I have gone through that transition. And so uh, I want to also commend you then on, on a very excellent report in terms of uh, the ambulance uh, a diversion destination and, and the work that you're all doing as a team for this. And, and, and I think it is uh, important to understand that one time, uh, as we know, the department was concerned how well we were going to have that quality and oversight that uh, of course uh, the state has mandated on uh, the department and at the same time, uh, have a smooth operations. And over these years, it looks like this is really what's happened now. The paramedics are embedded within the fire department. They're, you know, Um, they seem to be collaborative or at least this time you haven't come to tell us that they're not and uh, nor has the fire department uh, commissioners come to tell us that they don't really want this or whatever it is so um, and 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 I think that your presentation uh, from the uh, uh, emergency management side shows how it is bringing together all of our departments uh, to uh, have this uh, common goal of how to care for our patients when they are in need, and so uh, I, I think your report really was uh, uh, one of the uh, fine, uh, f- uh, finer reports that we have been able to receive, uh, and and I think your uh, delineation of issues coming up it's really forward-looking. So you ask, uh, you know, what the commission would uh, certainly be able to, and the department support you and 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 of course, all these four items seem to me that every one belongs in our role also in support of you uh, for it and and obviously with uh, the question of resources, uh, those are all going to be in a priority issue as as we all understand. I think your answer on the trauma uh, to Commissioner Guillermo helped answer one of my questions uh, because as we know, uh, some of us went through where trauma then became exclusive at General because it couldn't be handled well on an individual basis with you know just so many going here and so many going there and so many coming elsewhere so it looks like your alternate sites and 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 the fact that you've commissioned a study i think is one that we would all be interested in in understanding as part of the quality care and i would you know uh let uh, uh, Dr. Brown and and our uh, director figure out uh, exactly how we could help input and also uh, push the conversation regarding how to have alternate trauma. Uh, It it sort of begs the question also of uh, our uh, air capacity for trauma (laughs) and Dr. Brown and I have gone through this uh, many uh, iterations, but uh, it. I, I don't know that any of our hospitals except for UC actually has uh, air capacity, do they?
15: Sure, I could comment on that for you quickly. Yeah. Um, so um, for the commissioners to know, we developed in about 2006 a emergency air medical access plan and policy for the city so that if we had to, we could utilize approximately 24 um designated spots where we could move medical helicopters in and out. We had one exercise in 2007. We used Rolf Field, which is two blocks from San Francisco General, and that was successful. And then during other events, such as when we hosted the, or Santa Clara hosted the Super Bowl, we had that in play. In case there was an event down there, we could help out by getting, uh, receiving patients by air. But the only two regular pads in the city are the one at uh, Mission Bay Campus, UCSF Benioff Children's, and then at the VA. The VA also has one, the nice thing about VAs one is it's on ground level right near a major artery uh, uh, traffic uh, not not traffic but I mean a, a a very good road that we could pull ambulances in and out of quickly and we have exercised that pad the pad at uh, Mission Bay is used regularly so it doesn't need that level of exercising but we do want to exercise it in coordination with the uh, disaster activation so we can utilize that and those are two welcome sites because uh, as you know, commissioner in the 2000s, we had no uh, such facilities, but we don't have one at the trauma center. And that of course is where the biggest help would be. I know that there was a successfully completed noise study about the mitigation and how that would work and so forth. Uh, And I know that uh, that still remains as a resource, but at this time, there's been um, no interest in pursuing that, but uh, I know that that's a factor. And, And because I'm an advocate for trauma and disaster, Anything that we have that even just could be used just in a disaster at no other time, I think would be an advantage. So I'm certainly um, ready and willing to help any such efforts.
9: Thank you. You're right. as, as you know, the building is uh, built to support a uh, uh, hill if needed, but uh, the community, um, well, community might have different sentiments nowadays with uh, uh, the changing of the world uh, situation. But um, I, I, I don't think you and I want to test that at this point. Um, I only have one question, which is sort of and a number that we have not heard for a long time. And that is how well are we actually responding to 911 calls?
14: Yeah, I can take that question. Thank you, commissioner. Um, so we are currently in the process as we look at sort of data overhaul, um, trying to bring in all of those fields um, into one place and one dashboard for transparency, ease of access. Um, But our our internal numbers, so for um, emergency responses, code 3, our standard is 10 minutes, 90th percentile. For code 2 or non-emergent 911 calls is 20 minutes. Um, And so for the month of June, our 90th percentile for code 3 response was 10 minutes and 33 seconds. Um, Our time for code 2 response in the month of June was 21 minutes. So, for our response times, they're above where the, the interval of where we wanted, want to be. Um, but I would say that we've had about a minute reduction since some of those higher APOT times um, over the winter. And so, you know, it's continuous improvement to get those numbers down to, you know, where we want to be. And so that, that draws back into the importance of our efforts with the hospitals, efforts with diversion, efforts with having that um, BLS tier in the system for ambulance availability, and ensuring we have ambulances you know across the city to be able to respond um, as we get lower and lower levels of ambulances the system becomes really inefficient and so how can we build those efficiencies in the system um so yes they're above our our response interval but we're working to bring those down
9: so um are are, are we saying that uh, some of the uh, problem is that the ambulance is not available because there is this uh lag time in trying to download them into the hospitals and uh, what is the uh, goal, the national goal that, uh, or I should say the national norm uh, for a response time? Because I think this is high compared to what we've talked about nationally.
15: So, so I could answer that. Um, remember now, we also have a goal for our first response that includes an automatic defibrillator or time to defibrillation, and that's uh, six and a half minutes. And we've never been able to achieve that. That was designed as a milestone on the way down to five minutes. And where do I get these numbers from? So in 1998, the MS Medical Director Association of California performed a study about what is the optimal and achievable Uh, response intervals for urban areas in the state. And this is always a difficult factor when you pile in in the national data, for instance, in this CARES Registry, urban and rural areas. It's it's, uh, important to separate those out. Um, So we developed our policies, our response interval policies uh, around that. We were originally at eight and 10 minutes, so we moved to six and a half and 10 minutes. And so we're not achieving those. We are making progress, but we're not achieving those. But in an ideal world, we'd be down in five minutes. Why is that important? Because we are focusing on cardiac arrest patients. We can't, unfortunately, do that with the dispatcher. The dispatcher doesn't always know this is an actual cardiac arrest case, right? So there are certain types of complaints that the callers have, such as the person's not moving or they're not breathing, that key them into that. But we're focusing on the cardiac arrest patients because that's the only one that science shows clearly Minute uh, improvement is 10% increase in survival. So if we could reach the patient's side in as little as one to two minutes, we'd have a 70% plus survival rate from cardiac arrest. The best systems in the country, the one we always model off of, of Seattle, and their cardiac arrest um, uh, survival rates are about 10% better than ours are. So we're ca- gaining on them. In the past, they were 30 and 40% more, but that's where we would, would like to be and like to land and their response intervals uh, are geared towards the eight minute mark. But again, it's the CPR and AED time to start that is really the immediate improvement in cardiac arrest and those are the patients we're targeting.
9: Well, thank you very much. I I, I can see the goals are still the same and or even better that uh, you're trying to do. Uh, Your data doesn't separate out the cardiac arrest, I guess, right now and so um really appreciate all the work that uh, both of you and your agencies are doing thank you
0: commissioners other questions or comments all right director holcomb dr brown thank you very much also thank you to director carroll and your entire uh department of emergency management team for being here as well (laughs) All right, great. All in. Thank you very much.
11: I also just wanted to say um, thank you for um, this report. It's fantastic to see. I was intimately involved with the MS Agency, and it's wonderful to see these improvements being made um, and that the transition has gone well. Um, So I appreciate Director Carroll and um, Deputy Director Smuts and John and Andrew for you being here. Thank you. And all the as Agency.
15: Yeah, and I should, I should just add also from the medical director's perspective, it has been a, a wonderful transition and I appreciate Director Carroll and Deputy Director Smuts and all of the effort that went into preserving all the work that the Department of Health did over the late 2010s to establish what would be a robust and effective EMS agency. And I'm pleased to say it's really being implemented. So thank you
0: all. Thank you, Dr. Brown. Thank you. All right, moving on to our next item on the agenda. Uh, this is where uh, it's a community and public health committee update. Uh, chair of this committee, Commissioner Girado please take it away.
16: Thank you. Um, I will try to be brief. Uh, we had three items on our agenda. The first one is a revision to Health Code Code Article 31. It, this uh, is focused on the area, the cleanup area at the shipyard at Hunters Point, based on 1980. 1986 mandate for soil testing and in 2004 article 31 um, oversight was passed and the regulations have been in place since 2005 article 31 um, when parcels are turned over from the Navy cleanup to the city the uh, it is to Article 31 is to ensure environmental restrictions are followed and uh, particularly uh, the soil. We questioned considerably the uh, staff on the continued complaints from the residents of the area. And um, what the, in the amendments, the amendments that we that are gonna be brought to the commission um, next meeting are basically administrative changes, organizational changes, and easier to understand um, regulations. But what in our questioning and concerns um, with the, the staff, and it seemed to us kind of a, a disconnect between the uh, Navy, saying or the uh, epa saying that soil was clean and then the city took it over and there were some issues and the continued issues have been brought forth um, by the residents on a rather regular basis from our discussion so when this Item is brought up at our uh, next commission meeting for the um, amendments to be approved, which we we are recommending. We've requested a uh, presentation or a um, discussion on Article 31, but with the other DPH uh, uh, departments that are also um, involved in this issue since uh they are not the only ones that are responsible for the uh, concern with the toxicity of the continued soil contamination uh in this area so that is going to be brought hopefully our wonderful mark is going to be able to uh, wave his magic wand to put together the uh, uh the department so we can um, see really as my comment was there's multiple puzzle pieces to this and we only um saw the article 31 uh single puzzle piece versus the other players within this issue and felt that all of us needed to be informed well informed or better informed of um the continued issues at uh the uh, shipyard, the Hunter's Point area. That was Article 31. We went on to Article 38, which is uh, the enhanced ventilation system and the rules and regulations update that were ready in January 2020, but obviously could not be presented. This, um, the enhanced ventilation system rules and regs were passed in 2014, and this applied to new buildings in sensitive areas that have um, an increase in or within a map of the uh, city and the affected areas where the uh, there is a uh, significant particular particulate, particulate uh, matter and so the uh, enhanced ventilation systems are required and um This is based again on the zip codes and the air air pollutant exposure in the health incident report. This did not require um, any kind of uh, resolution. It was just uh, a presentation on enhanced ventilation. The last uh, report, which was excellent by wonderful Dr. Pratt, (coughs) was on jail health, which just as a reminder, Jail health is a combination of responsibility for physical health, behavioral health, and reintegration planning. It is a collaboration with the sheriff department, and um, it is, their services are, as what is defined in the report, the acuity is similar to long-term care facilities, such as individual medication, administration, um, and focus on the individual um, if needed there is a seamless transition to uh, ZsFG and as dr. Pratt noted um, it is a something to be really proud of because it there are very very few uh, jails in the country that have such a seamless uh, programs such as, as we do. Um, what the continued goals are an increase in behavioral health support and better integration with um, the systems throughout uh, behavioral health outside of jail health. I think it was interesting to note that in 2022-23 there were 7,880 unique patients that were uh, served and 74 percent of patients incarcerated in jail one and two are um, released within seven days and many within i she didn't have the figures within 24 hours so it was uh, an excellent update of their uh, true north uh, goals and the challenges going forward but it was uh um it was great to hear the updates particularly in the focus with behavioral health and um and what they're trying to do so i don't know if my fellow commissioners have anything to add to our committee report okay okay so I don't know if anybody has any questions, but that was our committee
0: meeting. Thank you, Commissioner Dorado. Uh, Do we have any public comment?
1: Folks on the line, we're on item seven, the community and public health committee. I don't see any hands we'll give it a second or two in case you wanna raise your hand, press star three. No hands, commissioners.
0: Commissioners, any comments or questions for the chair?
9: I I was just gonna ask, uh, yeah the the article 38 that was a uh, just a presentation when does it go into effect
16: or has it gone for the into it? that's the enhanced ventilation yes, system it's correct. in effect now oh okay yeah yes. it's currently in effect and it has been the present it has been since um I mean for or since 2014 is when uh, it was passed and so But the new
9: regs and the new the new new man went into effect when they then published it. Yeah, is that it? They're currently yes. All right,
0: thank you. All right, thank you, Commissioner Drado. Again, uh, this is where we are going to be switching up the agenda a little bit. Uh, This item we will be taking now is the joint conference committee report from Laguna Honda. Chair, Commissioner Guillermo.
4: thank you very much, President Bernal. Um, We had uh, our uh, JCC meeting on June 11th last week. uh, And um, uh, on the agenda was the executive team report, essentially what was presented uh, here to the commission by Mr. Pickens. Uh, uh, But uh, in addition to that, there was a report on the uh, uh, HR and vacancies uh, at Laguna Honda, and I think one of the key things that um, Uh, uh, was inquired, was inquired uh, to Mr. Pickens was given the the lowered census of Laguna Honda uh, to just over 500 uh, residents. uh, What is the staffing uh, level um, that has been maintained and he uh, confirmed that uh, staffing levels have been maintained uh, since prior to uh, the decertification. Uh, in the event that uh, certification does uh, occur or when a certific- recertification does occur, that we would not have an issue with trying to hire back uh, the kind of capacity uh, at all the different levels that um, that are required uh, in order to um, um, push forward on, uh, in particular, all of the changes and all of the um, uh, the needs that will be surfacing as uh, Lugana Honda uh, Uh, again uh, is able to bring uh, the number of residents back up to uh, whatever number of beds we're going to be able to maintain certification uh, around and licensing around. Uh, In addition to that, we had the regulatory affairs uh, report, which is our regular uh, report. Uh, And then uh, again, a number of policies that were presented, uh, which, um, Uh, required a a fairly robust discussion uh, within the committee uh, and asking for some clarifications and uh, uh, some uh, uh, changes as needed on some of those policies, uh, which um, are reflected in uh, the responses by uh, Laguna Honda management and staff on some of those clarifications. And I invite uh, my uh, fellow committee members to um pro, uh, pose any additional comments or concerns or questions that they might have about those policies um uh, prior to uh, any vote on approval but we did with those changes and with those clarifications uh, agree to present a um a recommendation for approval uh on the consent calendar for those unless again there are additional uh questions or concerns that are raised uh and then in closed session we um uh review the credentials report uh and the pips report uh as we would normally do
0: thank you All right. before we go to comments or questions from commissioners do
1: we have any uh public comment yes we do hi may please unmute mr manette you've got three minutes mr Manet shaw thank you
5: mr morowitz the uh lhh JC July 11th meeting, uh, Commissioner Guillermo presented, did not mention that Commissioner Chow continues to make excuses for Laguna Honda acting like it had been an acute care hospital, which, thankfully, um, HSAG is the recertification QIE, bravely admitted and his first root cause analysis report had been central to Laguna Honda having been decertified. LHH's management team starting 20 years ago with CEO John Connelly in 2004, then Myla Carosi in 2009, and then Michael Phillips in 2019, all having been CEOs had been running Laguna Honda like it was an acute care hospital and not following CMS regulations. Commissioner Chow, as well as the other six commissioners, almost surely know Laguna Honda has only 11 acute care beds, which are mostly acute rehabilitation and physical medicine beds, not acute hospital beds. Laguna Honda's remaining 769 beds are distinct part SNF beds that result in higher re- reimbursement. That the commission must know gets higher reimbursement and requires following CMS's SNF regulations, not acute care regulations. Commissioner Chow and this commission need to stop pushing for excuses that Laguna Honda's 11 acute care beds um, had required running Laguna Honda as if it were an acute care hospital. It's not. It's a distinct part SNP. We should never, ever hear this nonsense during a health commission meeting again. Thank you.
1: All right, thank you. And Jaime, please unmute Caller 5.
5: That, that was me, Mark.
1: Oh, I apologize. Uh, try for, uh, uh, I guess Do the the other hand is uh, Janice Cohen. Jeremy? Yes.
12: Uh, I think I may be on the wrong item. I was wanted to comment on eight um, part two, is this, eight part one that he's commenting on?
1: Uh, We're not, um, we're on item nine right now, joint conference committee update.
12: Oh, I thought we we finished 8.2?
1: No, no, thank you. Sounds like this is not the right item. Um, Please mute. I'm sorry. That's okay. And then uh, there's another hand, uh, caller four.
8: Hi, yeah, this is Dr. Palmer. Um, I wanted to address, the discussion that went on it looked, uh, about um, facility-wide policy 20-01. I urge you not to vote on that uh, today. It is um, not an appropriate policy. As far as I can tell, you are putting patients at San Francisco General who are not San Francisco residents above other residents of San Francisco who need a nursing home bed. And you are not um, you are having people that need to come in back to San Francisco from out of county as the lowest priority, even though mismanagement of Laguna Honda has resulted from them being sent out of county. I urge you not to vote on 2001 and to redesign your priorities uh, for that and just do not approve uh uh, a 2001 the way it's uh the way it is on the consent please uh, for all of us who may need a bet at laguna honda who paid for that bond me- measure who paid taxes it's um it's just kicking us in the face thank you well,
1: that, that's the only comment thank you you can mute everyone
0: all right commissioners any comments or questions
1: <clears throat> on the L- laguna honda jcc update
0: Commissioner Green, Vice President Green.
2: Yes. Well, first of all, I wanted to thank the staff at Laguna. We literally did this the day before you had to submit the corrective action plan. And I know both Commissioner Chow and I had several questions line by line for this very um, extensive policy. So I just wanted to thank you for um, delving into this and helping us better understand, because a lot of it was a matter of clarification. I think I was perhaps the one that brought up the um, issue of prioritization. And while we did receive an answer here, it implied that they would perhaps clarify or restate that policy. And I'm not, and I believe Commissioner Chow had another uh, area involving um, cleansing of of, um, identifiable data on uh, equipment that's transferred. So I'm not sure exactly whether we should await better wording on this or whether we've received any i only have the answers to the questions here Uh,
1: if i may so the um the issue around the data um i did send forward a revised version it's in your packet where um the words like i'm making this up but it was like best try we'll try their best to remove phi it's now we'll remove phi so that was the that was commissioner chow's request so that policy i think is as you all ask the prioritization I encourage you to ask Carmen questions because um, she's here to try to clarify this is your time to wordsmith or to make sure that that policy is what you want it or you can take it off the consent calendar
2: yes well that would be great if if you could perhaps read this policy to us with the clarification that um, that you wrote in I believe you wrote in the answer because I think it's really important that that it doesn't sound it sounds like it was the wording rather than the intent that was confusing and your policies being what people in the future will refer back to, I think it's so important that the policy reflects the intent.
1: So, Carmen, if you could get online and do that. And commissioners, if I may jump in, um, uh, some of the public comment already articulated this, but this policy does, uh, as written, does seem to articulate that someone who's a San Francisco resident who is, let's say, hospitalized in San Mateo or some other county has lower priority than a non-resident who happens to be at the general. And both of them are trying to vie for Laguna Honda bed. And right now, the policy seems to state that the, the non-resident at the general would be, be priority over a long-term resident who lives here. And so the commissioners, as well as the public, were concerned that that's not the right avenue. And the answers um, that you have in front of you um, do clarify some of that. But Carmen, can you get on online um, and, um, and talk to us a little bit, please?
4: Hi, commissioners. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Great. Thank you. Um, I remember this question was posed. I am not 100% sure what the response was. I am actually trying to get it from Nas right now.
12: And I apologize. Um,
1: oh, so I can read the response I have in front of me.
16: Okay.
1: Uh, I'm going to read the question and response. But I think the commissioners are wanting to make sure that the wording of the policy is um, adequate. So the, the question was. Why would somebody receiving adequate care in their present circumstances and not in a medical facility? Oh, actually, I'm sorry, that's not the, oh, here we go. Um, what about a San Francisco resident injured in an accident and taken emergency to an out-of-county hospital who now needs a sniff? Why would that person go to the bottom of the list just because the accident occurred outside the city? Conversely, why would a non-San Francisco resident admitted to ZSFG for the same reason be prioritized over a long-term resident? So the response, can you all hear me? Is that okay? Um, the response that uh, Laguna Honda gave is individuals who are non San Francisco residents referrals are not accepted for admission due to their out of county residency. So all of the five priorities are among those who are San Francisco residents. We could modify the bullet C on the three of the policy. I think page three of the policy to state San Francisco residents are accepted to Laguna Honda with the following priority guidelines to make that clearer. The first priority are individuals referred from the community, primarily from home. Regarding the third priority, there are individuals who qualify for SNF level care that may be stably housed with excellent social supports and a combination of primary slash home care that is providing excellent care for a time but would not be sustainable for caregivers over the long term. This is an example of individuals who fall into the third priority of persons who are not in a medical facility who are receiving adequate care in their present circumstances. One additional note about the insurance slash payer, if an individual is a San Francisco resident at ZSFG, however, and has Kaiser insurance, Kaiser may not authorize Laguna Honda as accepting SNF. So commissioners, that's, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's, and I know those who aren't in the the Laguna Honda JCC, this may be a little bit, up in the air, but th- those who know what's going on, please feel free to ask questions and clarifications or suggest word smithing.
2: Yeah, I-, I certainly would feel more comfortable if we extracted that from the approval and we I mean, I obviously the other members of the JCC have have opinions as well, but I'd like to read the policy written very clearly so there's no question about it and maybe approve it at the next uh, meeting.
0: All right.
7: And, That's- oh. I will.
0: Commissioner Chung,
3: Yeah, I actually think that it was pretty clear. So the policy is one thing, but the purpose and procedures clearly articulated that, you know, like it is for San Francisco residents in need of skilled nursing, acute and rehabilitation services. You know, that's the number one bullet point on the purpose. And also in terms of the procedure, it says here very clearly that, you know, out of, county residents would be um revealed periodically to place them back to the county that they belong so i i don't think that there's any conflict at all you know in terms of you know the the spirit of what what this particular policy is trying to do it's just my two cents commissioner chow Yes, uh, uh,
9: this was uh, uh, as, as uh, we have talked about discussed uh, rather uh, at length and I think that one of the problems and, and I would like to agree with the sentiment here about re- having this worded care uh, so that um, it is not ambiguous and, and all it shows in the responses we could word but it doesn't show it here. And it also didn't take into account our um, uh, number three discussion about going in as a priority about those who might need skilled nursing care now as versus those who might in the future need it, even though they're getting care at home. And so this was a matter that we thought we should actually have better discussion on and rather than trying to wordsmith here at the commission level, um, I would suggest that uh, we uh, follow uh, commissioner Green's suggestion that this particular area of the policy and this policy therefore be removed from the consent calendar and be brought back with additional wording that really is clearer. I mean, just to tell us we're going to put in the word uh, for San Francisco it does not help us understand the remainder of the priorities. And I believe this would be an appropriate uh, discussion again at joint conference to try to work out so that the commission would have it much clearer. Uh, so that, that would be my sentiment. Uh, uh, in regards to the other. since I have the floor right now, I'm quite satisfied there was a change already made. They removed the word best effort in terms of PHI information. And and that reads uh, uh, very clearly. And so I don't have a problem with leaving that on the consent calendar. But uh, I believe this one really deserves uh, further discussion because it is a policy issue and trying to understand best uh, what we would then be passing uh, or recommending at the next meeting. Uh, and, and that would be my suggestion also.
0: Commissioner, so, if as a procedural matter, removing this item from the consent calendar would be handled during the next item, correct? Not yes. during this item on the agenda.
1: Correct. Okay. Um, and Commissioner Guillermo, before you speak, may we ask Nas about the impact of removing this to, to see if, it's in, if it would impact any of the efforts, the research efforts, or just so that you all would be aware?
4: Yeah, that was my uh, concern at the time, was that we wanted to not hold up the rest of the policies being that were satisfactory uh, being passed. uh, uh, Because we were concerned about this particular one, uh, needing clarification. So Nas, if you could uh, confirm that that is, uh, in fact, uh, what what will happen? Or is that satisfactory in terms of the uh, rest of the policies?
7: Yes, if we could have the rest of the policies move forward, that would be wonderful. And, and good evening, commissioners. Apologies to jump in late this evening. Um, this policy was being reviewed and updated so we could prepare for our acute. Um, so the, the one sentiment of removing the um, the sentence in policy number six around UCSF, we were trying to remove that because we don't have a contract with UCSF. Um, And so this is part of our work for the acute. All that to be after that being said, though, if if this does um, come off the consent calendar, which I understand the concerns, uh, we'll just quickly turn it around to bring it back to you all in August. Um, So we'll be ready by September, since the goal is really for everything to be. filed and submitted in September, which is when we also want to ensure everything is in line for the acute as well, right? Um, so it's okay.
4: Okay. Uh, uh, and if the clarification that was provided in answer to the questions that were posed uh, is the guidance with how the policy is going to be reworded, uh, then that I believe would provide uh, more uh uh, more comfort around the concerns that have been expressed, but we really do need to see that wording. Okay. Uh,
1: yeah. And so commissioners I'll work with the Laguna Honda staff and we'll get something to you so that, um, that by the time you see it in the meeting, it hopefully will be looking like you want it to versus you're having to have the same discussion again.
4: Yeah. As long as we have the opportunity to sort of, um, uh, uh, uh if needed, ask further clarification or different wording, uh, prior to the August meeting.
7: Of course, absolutely. And and please do note um, we have a large number of policies in August. I apologize in advance.
0: All right, (laughs) Seeing, seeing no other comments or questions from commissioners, we can move on to the next item previously item eight, now item nine, which is the consent calendar. And I believe in order to move the consent calendar based on our conversation, we would need a motion to remove policy number 20-01 from the consent calendar. Do we have a motion? I so move. Is there a second? Second. All right, uh, public comment. Oh. Um, or do we need public comment on, on each motion? Not, no. not okay. removing
1: it. Only if you were gonna uh, going to discuss it as a separate item, but removing it, there's not. Right. Th- so, so, uh, so removing this item, all those in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? The item's removed. And, uh, and before you um, consider the cons- consent calendar, I do need to check public comment because this item does have that and there's two hands up. Correct.
0: Now, um, do we have a motion to consider the consent calendar with item A, which is policy number 20 01, removed?
16: Second. Or
0: is, that,
16: is that a motion? Motion. Motion. Is there a second? <laughs> second. Second. Okay, great.
1: All right, public comment. Great. So folks, we're on the consent calendar. If you'd like to make public comment, looks like there's three. Jaime, please um, start with user five. You're unmuted, please let us know that you're there. I'm,
5: I'm here, Mark, it's Patrick. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay, let me start then. Um, this was so confusing that you took comment from Dr. Palmer had a discussion among the commissioners about the admission policy 2001, and I wanted to comment on that before you took it off the consent calendar. But my testimony is that I wanted you to take it off the consent calendar, and here's why. Um, commissioners Green and Chow had expressed serious concerns about it, Uh, Commissioner Green had given an example of a San Francisco resident hospitalized out of county following a car accident who would have had a lower admission priority than somebody who is not a San Franciscan. Uh, Commissioner Chow had also questioned the priority for people who are in medical facilities but may, may need to receive care in a SNF setting. There are several changes that you need to discuss in greater detail. Like what about conserved San Franciscans who are placed in an out-of-county facility but are still uh, conserved San Francisco? What about San Francisco San Franciscans in out-of-county medical facilities that? or a long-term care acute care hospital who should be returned to Laguna Honda, even if they're in another medical facility. What about um, other SNF patients who were placed in out-of-county SNFs, uh, like the patients that were discharged from Laguna Honda last summer, 11 or 12 of whom died what about returning them or repatriating them back to San Francisco? What about waitlist patients and um, other uh, potential inequities of racial uh, inequities of people discharged out of county? Shouldn't they have some sort of route? or to repatriation and return. This entire policy needs to address re, uh, repatriation of San Francisco so that they're not so far away from their friends and families and support networks. This policy needs a lot of work. Um, and you may not be able to get it done by August. You need to really, really work on this policy. Thank you.
1: He's mute. Uh, Let's go to caller four.
8: Hi, it's it's Dr. Palmer again. Yeah, I I urge you to consider the right to return to the county um, for people through no fault of their own who end up um, out of county um the lack of uh, residential care facilities for the elderly is resulting in out-of-county transfers and when people decline further and need a nursing home they should have the right to return and of course uh the people that were discharged in 2022 and may again be discharged unfortunately in september um and so um somehow uh we're uh, still putting even if it's all san francisco residents we're still putting the flow at san francisco general above um, the rights of all disabled and elderly to um, age in their own communities uh, even if they need a nursing home thank you
1: all right and then please unmute the last caller dr cohen can you hear me yes
12: As a former psychiatric attending at the then mental health uh, rehabilitation facility, I resigned from my position there and my employment with the San Francisco Department of Public Health because of horrendous conditions and violations there that were strikingly similar to those Laguna Honda Hospital has been increasingly and consistently cited over the past 10 years and which like the MRF are now threatening its closure and conversion to housing for homeless individuals with mental health and substance use disorders. Problems at both the MRF and Laguna Honda Hospital are both largely the result of the flow plan, which has been in existence since 1993, but which since 2002 has become institutionalized as a DPH procedure. It's really not a plan, though. It's merely a fiscally-driven directive to discharge psychiatric patients from San Francisco General Hospital psychiatric units as soon as they are decertified, acute by Medicaid. This occurs regardless of patient's clinical status or the appropriateness of their placement. And ironically, in 2002, while I was at the MRF, Liz Gray the social workers in charge of San Francisco General Hospital discharges and the DPH conservators all complained that Laguna Hanna Hospital was refusing to admit patients that were being discharged to the MRF against the objections of myself and all of the other psychiatric attendings. As a mental health services researcher that studied for four years psychiatric patterns at San Francisco General Hospital, and as someone who's studied all of the longitudinal mental health outcomes research in the United States, I can say unequivocally that there is evidence that implementation of a mental health recovery system and model of care and placements driven by purely fiscally driven directives are mutually exclusive. I have attempted over the last 30 years to provide DPH with evidence-based alternatives to the flow plan and its new evolution in the behavioral health optimization project. I would like to extend that offer again to the Health Commission and the Department of Public Health to provide alternative evidence-based solutions and recommendations to the flow plan initiative. In that, I would say that in addition to the the procedures listed under priorities for admission, the section under screening should all.
0: Thank you, callers, commissioners. Do we have any? Do we have any uh, discussion on the motion to approve the consent calendar as amended? If not, we'll go to a vote. All those in favor?
10: Aye. Aye.
0: Aye. Opposed? All right, the consent calendar with the removal of the first item is approved. Okay, and now we go to our next item, which is... Uh, is it, uh,
1: other business. Other business, do we have any other business?
0: All right, no other business? Okay.
1: Uh, just make sure that folks on the line, if you uh, have public comment on other business, item 10, please press star three. Uh-huh. Okay, so we've got, may um, please unmute, caller five. Hi, Mr. Menachal. You've got three minutes.
5: Okay. Uh, I, as uh, when, um or ad-libbing my public comment for other business, you guys really need to schedule a separate uh, discussion and schedule it sooner than the JCC's um, next meeting in the middle of August, on August 8th, you need to rapidly rework that entire priority listing. And I invite Dr. Cullen to return for the JCC meeting to continue her recommendations of how she thinks those priorities in the admission policy should be changed as an item under other business. You guys have screwed around for 20 to 30 years on this flow project um, definition and mismanagement of Laguna Honda, and it really needs to be a separate other business agenda item as an item all by itself um, at an upcoming jcc meeting and then again at upcoming other business full health commission meetings you guys really need to have this conversation before you apply for recertification you need to get this policy correct before you send in that application thank you
1: that is the only comment Okay,
0: moving on to our next item. Uh, It is a closed session. Uh, So do we have a motion to enter closed session?
9: So moved. Second.
1: Okay, do you have any public comment? Let's see, any public comment on item 11? I see no hands. Okay,
0: all those in favor of entering closed session? Aye. 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 Opposed? We are in closed session. Well,
1: actually, there's one more vote that you do publicly. Um, You vote to hold a closed session in regard to asserting attorney client privilege is the next vote. Okay, does anyone have
0: a motion
9: to uh, Second,
1: uh, moved by
0: Guillermo, second by Chow. And that's the motion uh, to assert attorney client privilege. Any public comment?
1: Oh, there's no, Uh, there's only one public comment for this whole item, so we don't take it.
0: All right. Uh, All those in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? All right.
1: We are in
0: closed session, and we are asserting attorney-client privilege. Great. Folks on the line...
1: To disclose or not disclose, the discussion's held in closed
2: session.
3: Motion not to disclose what was um, discussed in the closed session.
1: Second. All right. Uh, Any discussion? If
0: not, all in favor? Aye. Opposed? All right, uh, the motion to not disclose is passed. And now we go to our final item on the agenda, which is adjournment. Do we have a motion to adjourn? Motion
3: to adjourn.
0: (laughs) Is there a a second? (laughs) All those in favor of adjournment? Hi opposed we are adjourned thank you everyone okay thank you dr